it has been a wee bit of time, um, and I hope you remember what happened earlier in the book. Um, we are reading The Anybodies. This is chapter four. It's called The Test. And we've got Fern, who's our main character, and her dad, The Bone. And they are in um, Fern's grandma's house, but they're calling her Mrs. Appleplum. I think they're still pretending. I can't remember if they're pretending that they don't, that they're not who they are still. Yeah, I think so. All right, here we go. The test. The kitchen had paths running through the stacked books. Mrs. Appleplum zipped around the maze. Fern and the Bone were sitting at the kitchen table. The Bone slowly, gently pushed a tower of books that sat in the middle of the table to one side so he and Fern could see each other. There were four places set, but no sign of the miser. The grandfather clock bonged six times, and it was clear that Mrs. Appleplum wasn't going to wait for the miser to arrive. She buzzed over to the stove and back to the table. I've got more tests, she said, smiling at Fern. More tests for Ida Bibb. Are you ready? Oh, that's uh, Fern's pretend name that she told her. Fern almost didn't recognize her name, Ida Bibb. But after a second's hesitation and a small kick from the bone under the table, she piped up, Oh, yes, yes! <laughs> First, we'll begin simply, Mrs. Appleplum said. The kitchen was hot from the hard-working stove. A moist steam made some of the books look puffy. Mrs. Appleplum's cheeks were flushed. She uncovered a dish with a flourish. The eggs were under-fried. Their greasy yolks jiggled. They were dyed a bright, bright green, like the ham. This was easy. Fern knew all of the Dr. Seuss books, all the silly rhyming, the furry, skinny-legged creatures. No, thank you, Fern said. I do not like green eggs and ham. <laughs> okay, so this test, what I'm remembering now, is that it's a whole bunch of different books. So um, see how many of them you know. If you wanted to keep a list, um, you could. That was um, Green Eggs and Ham uh, by Dr. Seuss. The bone said, I'll pass two. But it was obvious that Mrs. Appleplum didn't care about his likes and dislikes. Fern had gotten the answer right. Mrs. Appleplum buzzed away and back again. This time, she held out a dish with four pieces of wrapped bubblegum. Your entire meal, she said. It will taste like an entire meal, one course after a next. The bone picked up a piece and began to unwrap it. Really? That's amazing, he said. Where did you get this? Fern swiped it out of his hands and placed it back on the tray. No, thanks. I'm afraid that I might turn into a blueberry if I ate this for dinner. Maybe you know about a boy named Charlie who won a trip through a chocolate factory owned and operated by Willy Wonka and about a certain Violet Beauregard who loved bubblegum much too much for anyone's good health. Mrs. Appleplum smiled, whizzing back through the maze of books. The bone whispered, hey, I would have liked to try that. Mrs. Appleplum appeared again. That leaves me only with this. She whisked off another lid. Turkish delight. Now this was hard to resist. It was a beautiful jello-like extravaganza, covered with powdered sugar. Fern could smell the sugar and rose water. The bone had already lifted his plate, hoping someone would fill it up. I certainly am getting a real appetite, he said. Fern looked up at Mrs. Appleplum. Appleplum. Fern was thinking of a book in which kids had walked into a wardrobe and gotten into quite a bit of trouble in another world altogether. She said, that would be lovely, but I'm afraid, very afraid, that once I started eating it, I wouldn't be able to stop. Okay, that book 
you may or may not have read. It is really good, but um, it I don't know if kids read it anymore. Um, I liked it. Um, it's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There are a lot of them, I think. Or maybe just a few. Ah, I forget. Anyway, um, they go into the back of a wardrobe, which is like a closet. And then they're in another world called Narnia. Okay, Mrs. Appleplum looked at Fern like Fern was a shiny, shiny pearl that she had just found in an oyster. Very well done, very well done. How about grilled cheese and tomato soup? Fern thought about it. She traced and retraced her mind. Grilled cheese, tomato soup. She turned to the bone. He was looking at her pleadingly. Okay, she said, that sounds fine. And so that was it. Mrs. Appleplum had given up. She was sweaty and seemed very happy in her defeat this time. She said, and you can lick the wallpaper too if you'd like. The limes taste like limes. And she walked back to the stove. The, the bone only looked at Fern, the bone looked at Fern, then at the wallpaper. Only a small sliver, it, sliver of it, limes, cherries, oranges, was showing with all of the books. She shrugged, and they both leaned close to the wallpaper, cautiously inspecting it. You go, Fern said. No, you, the bone said. Both at the same time, Fern offered. The bone licked an orange. Fern licked a lime. Lime, Fern said. Orange, the bone said. Fern was really starting to, to get the idea of this place. When Mrs. Appleplum returned with soup and sandwiches and glasses of milk, Fern was ready to turn the tables. The bones started slurping and munching, but Fern was eating slowly. She had questions for Mrs. Appleplum. Would there happen to be a peach tree around here, she asked casually. Yes, said Mrs. Appleplum, dipping her sandwich in her soup. And is one of the peaches oversized? Yes, you could even call it a giant peach, said Mrs. Appleplum, chewing. <laughs> You know that one, James and the Giant Peach? I was actually scared of that book when I was little, and I've never gone back to read it. Um, I was creeped out because I think there's like some giant bugs or something. I should probably try it again. Um, I've noticed, too, that the sidewalk ends right at your front door. Any comment? No, no comment. That is where the sidewalk ends. That's all. But if I were to pack up and take off, I wouldn't pack a suitcase. Fern paused a minute. She was thinking else would you pack your things in? And then she remembered those two kids who ran away and didn't want anyone to know, so they had to be tricky. Would you pack a violin case? Of course, Mrs. Appleplum said. And those thieves you said filled this house. They aren't little people, are they? They aren't borrowers, are they? Could be. Then let me guess, those creatures digging in the garden aren't gophers. Nope. Hobbits? Are they hobbits who are living in your front yard, who have good manners and are uptight and come from a hard place, Fern asked. Mrs. Appleplum beamed. She looked at the bone. Do you know what we have here, Mr. Bibb? Do you have any idea? The bone's mouth was too full to speak. He shook his head and wiped his cheesy mustache. Mrs. Appleplum shook her head and smiled and smiled. Oh, my, she said. No, you don't have any idea, Mr. Bibb. No idea. Oh, my. Oh, my. And she dabbed her teary cheeks. Then the stairs creaked. The bones back straightened. Mrs. Appleplum blew her nose. Fern watched a shadow flash through the living room and then saw the full dark shape of the miser, dressed as Mr. Hazer Blatherness, with his bushy eyebrows hiding his eyes. He was wearing a large hat that puffed out of his head like a chef's hat, but it wasn't a chef's hat. It was black and velvety. He looked haggard, exhausted, worn out. Good evening, he said. The bone stood up stiffly, turned and saw the miser there. The bone was staring intently at the miser's face. 
Nice to meet you, Mr. Hazerbladerness, the bone said. Uh, yes, nice to meet you, too. What was your name again? Mr. Bibb and my daughter, Ida. Fern smiled. Yes, lovely girl, the miser said blandly. Fern noticed that the miser seemed to be a bit breathless, and there was a mark on the tip of his nose, a small extra hole, as if the tip of his nose had been pierced like a bull's. Fern thought of the cloud that was hiding in the neighbor's bushes and how the man from the Census Bureau had one hand made of cloud. It seemed to her that the miser wasn't always perfect at getting himself from one disguise to another quickly and completely. You missed dinner, Mr. Hazer Blatherness. Uh, we start at six o'clock sharp, Mrs. Appleplum told him. And I don't care for hats worn indoors. It isn't well-mannered. Oh, said the miser. Oh, well, let me take my leave then. I won't disturb you. He bowed and left, but never took off his hat. Chapter 5. The Spider Horns, for, for, Fern whispered to the bone as they did the, the dishes. Horns, don't you think that's what he's got under his hat? It could happen. The effects of transformation could linger, but not for long. In the morning he'll be back fully, but he'll be tired. That kind of transformation takes a lot of energy. He'll need to sleep. The bone was washing and, the fern, and fern was drying. The dishes had to be put back into the cupboards because there was no place to let them sit and dry. Books were everywhere. In fact, books lined the back of the cupboard, leaving only enough room for the four dishes. Silverware was kept in mugs on the counter because the drawers were filled with books, too. Fern rubbed the dishes in quick circles. She was thinking hard. But I don't think he wanted to turn into a bull when he got angry seeing all those books in the barn. It seems to me that you and the miser have opposite problems. You can't make the transformation, and he can't stop himself from making the transformation, Fern said. Right? I guess you're right, the bone said as he turned off the faucet. We should go through the rest of the books in our room. Um... Uh, I think we can finish them off tonight. But there's got to be an easier way, Fern told him. There must be some kind of shortcut. We could search our whole lives and never find the art of being anybody. As they walked through the parlor, passing Fern's mangled black umbrella, still hanging precariously from the hat rack, Mrs. Plum stopped them. Apple Plum. She was sitting on the sofa under a glass globe light doing some hand stitching. This surprised Fern because she expected Mrs. Apple Plum to read in every second of her spare time. Mrs. Appleplum poked the needle through the cloth she was working on and propped her glasses up on her head. She rubbed her eyes. Mr. Bibb, I was wondering if I could borrow Ida for a little bit. My eyes are so tired. I was hoping she could read to me. They exchanged glances. Fern had planned on going through as many books as she could and also on stealing some time to write in her diary. But they, know, they both knew that Mrs. Appleplum might hold the best clues of all. Of course, someone told her. Absolutely. So the bone headed upstairs, and Fern sat down on the sofa next to Mrs. Appleplum. Here, the old woman said, these three. She handed Fern three books. Which one do you want me to read, Fern asked. One? No, all three, please. One line at a time from each. I prefer to read three at a time. It's more interesting. <laughs> but, but how can you keep it straight if you read one sentence from one, then the next, and the next? It's too confusing. Well, said Mrs. Appleplum, it takes practice, but I suppose there are those who find playing one game of chess fully consuming, and then there was that fellow Bobby Fisher, who could play a dozen games at once, keeping them all in his head. This seemed to make sense to Fern. Mrs. Appleplum was a quarter of the way into each book. Anne Frank, The Diary of a Young Girl, Fair and Tender Ladies, and Catherine Called Birdie. While Mrs. Appleplum stitched, Fern read a sentence from each one in turn. At first she concentrated so hard 
It seemed like her head might explode, but slowly, slowly she let go. She let things sink in, and it seemed she was getting the hang of it. In fact, it seemed like the three books had a lot in common. They were all about young girls writing down their own lives in diaries and letters. The stories swirled into one another and around in Fern's head. Finally, Mrs. Appleplum said, that's good, Ida, you can stop there. Are you sure? I can keep going if you want. No, no, that's fine. Do you like the books? I do. I think all the girls are very smart. Well, I think that most smart young girls like to write things down, don't you? I do. Fern looked at what Mrs. Appleplum was sewing. It was a tiny dress, only big enough for a very small doll. Fern hoped that her staring at it would invite Mrs. Appleplum to make a comment, explain the little dress, but Mrs. Appleplum didn't say a word about it. Good night, Ida. Good night. Fern walked up the narrow stairs, passed slowly by the miser's room, pausing long enough to hear his mysterious scratching noises. She heard a soft hum from her bedroom door, and she knew what it was right away. The bone with his, sweet, sweet, my sweet darling, what ha where have you gone, where have you gone? Fern pretended to trip in the hallway. Ouch, she said loudly, darn it, and the humming stopped. She opened the door, sat on the bed, and rubbed her shin. Are you okay? The bone asked. I'm fine, just caught my shin on the edge of a book. That's a hazard in this house. Gotcha, Fern said. I've looked at every book in this room. And some twice. Nothing. I'm tired, the bone said. This trip has taken more out of me than I expected. I'm tired too, said Fern, and she was. Reading three books at the same time had taken its toll. So they got ready for bed, one brushing teeth while the other got dressed in pajamas. Soon they were both in their beds. Sweet dreams, the bone said. Sweet dreams, said Fern. She took the barrettes out of her hair. It felt good to have her hair loose on her head. Shortly, the bone was snoring, deep rattling breaths. But Fern couldn't sleep, though she was sleepy. She climbed out of bed and dug her diary out of her bag. There was a small breeze and a stream of moonlight coming in through the open window, where they'd cleared away the, the books to spy on the miser. She sat down, untied the small key from around her neck, and opened the diary. She had so much to catch up on. Her grandmother, this house full of books, the miser turning into a bull. But as soon as Fern opened the diary, there was the picture of her mother. She was careful with the photograph. She held it delicately by its edges, her mother, her round belly, her big eyes, her soft smile. For the first time, Fern noticed the background of the, of the picture. Fern wrote what she saw in the photograph. It looks like a gas station, an old gas station with ancient-looking pumps, maybe so old they were already abandoned even back then. There's a record player behind my mother on a small table, its cord winding back to the gas station's door. And my mother's skirt is off to one side, as if she'd been caught swaying or slowly dancing. Her mind drifted back to Mrs. Appleplum, and she wrote down what Mrs. Appleplum looked like and all about the house. She wrote everything she could think of, even what the miser had said about killing a spider, all the way up to what Mrs. Appleplum had just said to Fern while reading the books. Well, I think that most smart young girls like to write things down, don't you? Then Fern thought to herself, don't you? Most smart young girls write things down things down. Fern sat upright in bed. A diary! Her mother had kept a diary. She'd written down things she'd seen, things she'd thought were important, just like I do, Fern thought. Like me! It was something she and her mother had in common, and the idea thrilled her. Then it dawned on Fern that her mother must have written about the art of being anybody in her diary. She turned to the bone and whispered sharply, Bone! Bone! Wake up! The bone didn't budge. Fern put the picture back in her diary, looked at locked it, and put the key on its string, retying it like a necklace. 
When Fern looked over at the bone again, he was still snoring. She saw a horrid sight. In the thin moonlight, there was a spider, a big black hairy spider swaying on a line of a silver line of webbing. Now, Fern usually likes spiders because of Charlotte, um, from Charlotte's lab, the wonderful literate spider in that book about the pig and the girl named Fern, oh, like her, who wasn't named after a plastic plant made in China. But this spider didn't look like Charlotte at all. This spider dangled above the bone's head. It had a shiny red belly, and Fern heard the miser's voice in her head. You wouldn't want to be bitten and die. You wouldn't want to be bitten and die in the night. It was a very, very big spider. Fern wondered if it could be the miser. If he could change into a bull, he could probably just as easily turn into a spider. Could the miser want to kill the bone right now in his bed? The spider seemed to have inched closer to the bone. It, its hairy pincers clicking. Fern was too scared to move, but she couldn't let the spider bite the bone. Her father, he was too precious to her now. She needed him more than she'd known. Fern's heart was knocking in her chest. She picked up a book beside her bed, The Complete Guide to Fairies. It was a heavy book. She would throw it at the spider and kill it. Fern took a fake practice throw, still holding tight to the book, but aiming, and then another. The book was suddenly heavier, heavy, heavier than when she picked it up. She lifted the book up and down quickly, testing its weight. And then, much to her surprise, something slipped out of the book and landed on the wood floor with a small thud. Fern was shocked. She almost screamed. Fern saw a little fairy, a red-headed fairy, who would fit in the palm of your hand. The fairy had obviously been in the bath and had only had enough time to grab a towel, which she wrapped around herself, startled and shaken, maybe a little embarrassed. Can't blame her. Wouldn't you be embarrassed if you slid out of the tub, tub onto someone's floor? Her hair was still sudsy. The fairy got up, quickly, tried to look dignified, but then ran off out the bedroom door. As wild as this was, Fern had the power to shake things from books. Fern had to stay focused. The poisonous spider was still there, pincers and all. Not wanting any more fairies to pop out, Fern reached for another book. It was the perfect book. She knew exactly which book it was. She'd put it there earlier. She was so happy with her luck that she grabbed it as quickly as she could. The world of bats. Yes, of course, bats eat spiders. That would fix things perfectly. She thought that a bat might snap from the book, flutter around the room once, then swoop at the spider, eat it, and flap out the window. Unfortunately, things don't always go as one hopes they will, even when the plan is a very smart one. You see, the bone had shuffled through Fern's books, double-checking them while she'd been reading to Mrs. Appleplum. Op Fern opened the book in the direction of the spider and shook it once. Shook it just once, firmly. But instead of a bat, there was a small breeze that jostled the spider, then gusts. The teacups, with their drink-me labels, started to rattle. Books flipped open, pages flapped, the lampshade popped off its bulb, and then there was a swirling, swirling wind. What? What? The bone woke with a start. Tornado! Fern called out, her blankets being sucked up into the funnel twirling, swirling around the room. Her pillow, too. Tornado! Fernan and the bone were gripping onto their mattresses now. There was a pounding at the bedroom door. Ida, Mr. Bibb, it was Mrs. Appleplum's voice. What is it? Let me in. Fern was now clawing to stay on her mattress. The tornado was pulling her up, up. The bone was reaching for her. Take my hand, he yelled. They reached and reached, and finally the bone grabbed hold of her hand, but now was the only thing keeping her from disappearing into the funnel, which bumped around the room violently. Fern's fingers were slipping. I can't hold on, she yelled. Just then, Mrs. Appleplum busted into the room. The door hit the tornado like a lever at the bottom of a pinball machine and smacked it, spider and all, out the window.
Mrs. Applepalm looked around the wind-kicked room. Books were still dropping onto the floor, the bed. The covers landed in a lump, sagging over the dresser. What happened? I think I killed Mr. Hazer Blatherness, said Fern. Are you okay? The bun said. Are you okay? I'm fine, but I think I killed Mr. Hazer Blatherness. What, child? said Mrs. Appleplum. No, you haven't. He's right here. And there at her side, the miser appeared. The hole in his nose was gone now. He was breathing normally, and his hat was off too, revealing a normal, hornless head. I, I... Shook a book by accident, not knowing. Everyone was staring at Fern. And, urged Mrs. Appleplum, as if she knew exactly what was going to come next. Well, a fairy fell out of the first one, but there was a spider, a poisonous spider. So I thought I'd get the book on bats so the bat could eat the spider, but it wasn't a book on bats, it was something else. Oh my, said Mrs. Appleplum. She stared at Fern intently. Little girl, do you know what you've done? Fern looked at the bone, who was pale and swallowing dryly, and at the miser, who glared, then to Mrs. Appleplum again. You've brought them back. Oh, they're back all right. Mrs. Appleplum clapped her hands together and nearly bounced up and down. Shake this, she said, handing Fern a gardening book. Fern was scared. She held the book very gently. It's okay, Mrs. Appleplum told her. It's fine. Shake it. And so Fern did, gently at first. Nothing. Harder now, Mrs. Appleplum told her. Fern shook it harder, and there on her bed plopped a small pile of pansies, dirty roots and all. The book was suddenly lighter, and Fern felt light-headed. She stared at the flowers, then at Mrs. Appleplum, then back at the flowers with their scrawny roots and fine spray of dirt on the bare mattress. She couldn't help remembering the crickets that had once toppled out of the picture book when she was four years old. She'd dismissed it, but it was true. It had happened. <sighs> oh, my, Mrs. Appleplum hooted. The Book of Presidents was the next one that Mrs. Appleplum found in the mess. She grabbed it and shoved it at Fern. This one, this one too. Fern took the book in her hands. It was a very large book. But but anything could come out, Fern said. The Civil War would come out. Could come out, the bone blurted. This made the miser smile in a twisted way. Shake it, he said. Just shake it lightly, Mrs. Appleplum instructed. And so Fern did. A big black top hat popped out. Fern gasped. Do you think it's Abraham Lincoln's? Could be, could be, Mrs. Appleplum squealed. What a mildly interesting little talent, the miser said. What a nice little party trick. The, burns, the bone stared at the hat with his mouth wide open, and a grin spread across his face. Mrs. Appleplum picked up a book off the floor, right in front of her feet. The Wizard of Oz? Maybe this is the book that you shook. It's possible, Fern said. Well, I'd say we were quite lucky. It could have been worse. It could have been those flying monkeys. Well, everyone seems to have escaped without injury, the miser said. How lucky indeed. And he turned and left the messy room. Mrs. Appleplum got right up close to Fern's face, so close that her eyes were gigantic. Two moons. Oh, dear, you've made me so happy, so very happy. She gave Fern a peck on the cheek. Fern was surprised. She touched the spot of the kiss with her finger, as if to make it stay right there. Then Mrs. Appleplum held up a warning figure. Just don't pick up any books about that blasted mouse on his motorcycle. He's trouble, I tell you. A menace. And no pirates, please. They're so surly. She started shuffling out the door, down the hall, talking more to herself than to Fern. And those science books on dinosaurs? No, no, no. Can't have that. Oh, my. Oh, my. She was singing joyfully now. It's all coming back. It's all coming back. Okay, I have a question for you. If you could shake a book, any book and have something fall out, what book would you shake 
and what would you hope would come out? And then of that same book, what would you not want to come out? So for example, Very Hungry Caterpillar. If I shook it, I would want all those those treats to fall out that he eats on Saturday, um, except for the sausage. I wouldn't want that to fall out because I don't like sausage. Um, and it would be fine with me if the caterpillar came out or the butterfly. That would be nice. That's just an example. I would love to hear what book you would shake. All right. Chapter six, Goldfish. It's a wonderful gift, the bone said once Mrs. Applebaum was gone. A truly wonderful gift. The bone walked up to Fern, and she wondered if he'd hug her, if he'd give her a peck on the cheek as Mrs. Applebaum had. He looked like he might, but then he shook his head as if reminding himself that he wasn't the type. He started picking up books. Fern was a little disappointed, but she was too busy to dwell on it, thinking back now, her mind reeling. Had the spider been Fern's imagination? She had a great imagination, you know, but wasn't the spider trying to get at the bone? Wasn't it the miser transformed? Fern explained how the miser said he had killed a spider earlier in his room, and then she saw the spider. It was coming after you. Oh, it was the miser's doing, that's the truth, said the bone. But, but how? How could he have turned back into himself so quickly after having been the spider that was blown out the window? He was standing right there so calmly. He hypnotized you, Fern, just ever so slightly. It's called the power of suggestion. He suggested very clearly that you might see a poisonous spider tonight and that it might bite. He has a certain way with his voice, a sing-song that can make you believe something more easily. Oh, Fern said. She felt a little foolish. She didn't like the idea that the miser had gotten one over on her. She didn't like to be tricked. But then she remembered that she knew something the miser didn't. The diary. My mother used to keep a diary when she was a little girl my age. If we find that, it might lead us to the art of being anybody. Well, the bone said, even if the diary would lead us to the art of being anybody, it's still just another book, another needle in this haystack. He smoothed Fern's windblown hair. I think we should try to be safe, most of all. I'd die if anything, if anything ever. Fern stood still, hoping he'd finish his sentence if she held on to the moment as best she could. She thought back to the spider hanging on its silver thread over the bone, and how it had made her panic with fear that something might hurt him. But the fern turned away from fern. The bone turned away from fern, found the lampshade on the floor, and put it back on the light. The bone and fern untangled the covers on top of the dresser and started clearing the books off their mattresses. Luckily, the tornado had taken a lot of books with it, and the spider too, although it probably hadn't really existed. Fern began at the bottom of the bed and worked her way up. She found her pillow across the room and was about to put it back at the head of the bed, but there was one more book to be found. <gasps> this one was very small, leather-bound. It had a small golden lock. Oh my gosh, you guys. It was in the exact same spot where Mrs. Appleplum had been standing. Had she been standing on it in her orthopedic shoes? Look, Fern said. It's a diary. Do you think it could? The bone stopped and turned. But I went through every book in this room, each and every one, and I never saw that. I know I didn't, he said. It must have been hidden in some way. The tornado must have locked it loose. The lock would need a tiny key, and Fern, it just so happened, had one. She sat down on the bed and lifted the necklace from her neck. She untied the string. She fit the key into the lock. Do you think it's going to open it, even though it's to her diary? You think so? 
It turned, and the latch fell open. Fern was feeling completely magical now. She held the diary close to her heart. She wasn't ready to open it, not yet. She looked at the painting on the wall. She stood up and walked to it. She remembered the painting in the parlor of a bowl, the kind usually filled with fruit, but it looked like the fruit had been taken away and the bowl had been refilled with books. Was it possible to reach into a painting? Was it possible to reach into a painting and pull fruit out of the bowl? The bone watched Fern quietly, watched quietly as Fern closed her eyes. She wished that something would happen, something unexpected. She lifted her hand to the painting. She inched her hand closer and closer till she felt something give, and then she glided her hand gently inside of it. She touched a lily first. What's it like, Fern? the bone asked. Fern kept her eyes shut tight, afraid that if she opened them, it would all disappear. The petals are soft, velvety soft, she said, and they were. She rubbed them with her fingertips the way someone would to test a fine silk. She thought, things aren't always what they seem, are they? No, no, they aren't. <coughs> Fern squeezed her eyes shut even tighter. She felt her way gently along an outline of wet rocks and then reached into the pond. It was wet and cool, and the goldfish swirled around her hand so closely they brushed her with her fins. She opened her eyes slowly, slowly. The bone was transfixed, amazed. It's a beautiful thing, he said. There she was, fern drudger, up to her elbow in a painting, rings rippling out across the small pond. In the middle of a messy room, a tangle of bed linens and a thousand books, curtains, shoes, pansies, a top hat, top hat, her three hateful barrettes lying on the floor, and do you know what she was thinking? She was thinking a thought that only she could think with half her arm inside of a painting after a tornado. She was thinking that this was what home must feel like, this or something very close to it. Whew, so exciting. Oh my goodness. All right. Chap this is part four, the diary. Oh, and the chapters restart, don't they? All right, chapter one, part four, decoding. Hopefully you were paying attention in part two, chapter one. That's where I reported that the bone told Fern that even Eliza's grocery lists were in some kind of code, remember? And that meant, of course, her diary was too. There was only one word that wasn't in code in the diary, and that was Eliza's name, written in curly Q letters on the first page. The rest was a mess of lines, squiggles, and some numbers. At first, Fern spent her evenings trying to decode the diary. She'd had no luck. Then she decided to use her fledgling powers to try to shake the diary in hopes that, you guessed it, the art of being anybody would slip out. This hadn't produced results either, but she was hopeful. Her days were spent under Mrs. Appleplum's wing out of doors, which is the best place to shake a book if you aren't exactly sure what's going to come out. Mrs. Appleplum was trying to teach Fern, while Ida had to shake a book with concentration so she could better control the outcome. Fern was getting better and better. She'd wanted white dinner gloves to fall out of the book of manners, and that's exactly what she got. There was still a problem. On a book about baby bunnies, she'd only been able to shake out a sprinkling of tiny turd pellets. But all in all, she was improving, and this made Mrs. Appleplum very happy. And making Mrs. Appleplum happy made Fern happy, because deep down, Fern wanted Mrs. Appleplum to love Ida Bibb. One day, Fern hoped that she would be able to come clean about being Fern, her granddaughter, and she wanted this to come as a pleasant surprise to Mrs. Appleplum. Do you think she already knows, Mrs. Appleplum? I would think that she would, 
because Fern looks a lot like her mother with her hair and her big eyes. I wonder. My guess is yes. One afternoon, they toted their books to the cool shade of the giant peach. I don't have time to describe the peach in detail. I've got to get on with Fern's story, but if you'd like a description of what exactly this peach looked like, you should consult Mr. Raw Dahl's book on the subject. It's quite good. <laughs> From this spot, Fern could hear the hobbit's hushed, polite chatter in the Brambley front yard. Do please, after you. Most kind, thank you. And twice she thought she saw a mouse skittering through the grass, but on second look, she saw it was the fairy. She was wearing a small gray dress. It was the same dress Mrs. Appleplum had been sewing the night Fern read her the three books. And how had that come about exactly? Fern didn't know. Once she thought, she caught the fairy shaking her fist in Fern's general direction, which was unusual because one usually thinks of fairies traipsing around maples or playing the lute. Mrs. Appleplum was being demanding, but tender. Try again, she told Fern. Try harder. Fern was concentrating. Her tuft of unruly hair was waving in the wind. She'd woken up one morning to glimpse a very small person hauling her barrettes and pansies away in a basket. Fern remembered Mrs. Appleplum telling her to report any thefts, but Fern didn't need the pansies and she didn't want those old barrettes anyway. She let the little person take them away. Was it a borrower? It was highly unexpected to wake up and see a miniature person stealing your things. But Fern was starting to expect the unexpected. Once, while taking out Mrs. Appleplum's garbage, she'd seen a snarling rat that stuck out his tongue at her for no apparent reason. Hmm. Snarling rat. I'm thinking about the rat in, um, uh, in Charlotte's Web, but I can't remember his name. Were you able to do this when you were younger, Fern asked? I give my gifts away as often as I can, Mrs. Appleplum said. I gave this gift to my daughter, who passed away. Fern had been waiting for a chance to ask a question about her mother. She tried to sound casual. What was she like? Fern asked. She wanted to ask if she smelled like lilacs, but that might be suspicious. She was loving. She was smart. She was funny, too. She was the kind of person you always wanted to be with. It was like she had a light that shined out from her face. And when she looked at each person, they shined in her spotlight and flowered into their own most wonderful attributes and deepest good intentions. She looked at each person as though they were the best person in the world. Oh, Fern said, she was a good bit like you, Ida, a good bit. This made Fern swell with pride, although she felt guilty that Mrs. Appleplum still thought she was Ida Bibb. She wanted desperately to tell her that she wasn't an encyclopedia salesman's daughter, but Mrs. Appleplum's very own granddaughter. She could hardly contain the secret. It seemed to burn in her, a horrible lie. She wanted to tell Mrs. Appleplum the truth so that Mrs. Appleplum could take Fern in her arms and hug her tightly. Fern remembered the exact spot on her cheek where Mrs. Appleplum had kissed her the night she'd shaken her first book. Fern thought, I'm like my mother, my wonderful mother. She shook a book on pruning fruit trees and a hundred apples fell out. Beautiful, shiny apples as red as hearts. The daily lessons were good because they distracted Mrs. Appleplum, allowing the bone time to pretend to look through the books in the kitchen or the living room or the hall closet while really he was trying to decode the diary. You see, Fern and the bone had to keep looking through books or the miser would get suspicious and know they were on a different scent. The miser also liked the distraction that Fern caused Mrs. Appleplum. It gave him time to look for the book as well. And it was always possible that the miser would get to the book first by random luck. In the evenings, Fern would also try to help the Bone get better at becoming Mr. Bibb. 
Simone had brought his gold pocket watch and his bells. Fern would sway the watch back and forth. She would say, you are Mr. Bib, Mr. Bib, Mr. Bib. At the end of the series, she'd ring one bell like crazy. How could they ring the bell, you might ask, without alerting the household? Well, Fern told Mrs. Appleplum that she was trying to learn to play the bells. She was part of a Christmas chorus at school in which she was crucial to jingle bells and had to keep practicing or she'd get rusty. And they always waited until the miser had gone out, which he did every night. For a walk, he claimed, as Mr. Hazer Blatherness. But really, he was working his way steadily through the books in the barn. Late at night, after Mrs. Appleplum was fast asleep, they'd seen him out there with a small crew of his spies put to work sorting books. The spies drove up, drove up in the red band, the gold letters, easily readable, Hazer Blatherness lights plastic and toiletries. Fern found it suspicious, a company as weirdly made up sounding as the last name, Hazer Blatherness. And who specializes in lights, plastics, and toiletries all at the same time? After the bell rang, the bone would open his eyes. He would walk to the mirror, and he almost always had a Mr. Bib nose. Sometimes he had the black hair. No need for slicking it with shoe polish, and more and more often the mustache was real. And occasionally he'd find himself drawn to the topic of encyclopedias and the importance of a set in every American home. After all of this, Fern would turn her attention to the diary. She spent the hours after dinner shaking the book with as much concentration as she possibly could. The bone would pace. So far, they'd gotten a movie ticket stub, two pieces of toffee, and a hairbrush. <laughs> Is this a diary or a pocketbook? Fern complained. The bone couldn't watch. When something new fell out, he'd whispered, Is it? Is it? But when Fern told him, No, it isn't, he'd walk to the window. Don't tell me. I don't want to see. Fern understood. It was a mix of sweetness and sadness to have her mother's things suddenly fall into her lap. The hairbrush was especially hard to take because a few strands of her mother's long, dark hair were woven through the brush. Fern put all of her mother's things in her bag, but the brush was progress, Fern felt. It seemed like the items were getting bigger, heavier, from movie stub to toffee to hairbrush, so a book didn't seem impossible. Sometimes when she was alone in the room, she would walk over to the painting of the goldfish and slip her hand inside and try to recapture that feeling she'd had the first time she'd done it. She wanted to feel like she was getting closer to feeling like she was at home, but each time she did it now, her hand fanning and swirling around the goldfish, she felt dishonest. She felt guilty. How could she really feel at home if she was pretending to be Ida Bibb? How could she? One night after about two weeks, an odd thing happened. The bone was at the window, keeping watch over the miser, who had a ladder and a flashlight and had disappeared up the ladder into a tunnel he dug through the walls, the wall of books in the barn. <clears throat> His spies were with him, their small muscular bodies digging shuffling. They were whistling, which is a stereotype, really. It's what you think little people would do while they're working, like the seven dwarfs. And I don't like stereotypes, but in this case, the spies were, in fact, whistling, so I must include it. And really, they have every right to whistle. There's nothing wrong with whistling while you work, for goodness sakes. I've done it. In fact, I'm doing it right now while I'm writing this. <laughs> and what would my old writing teacher think of that? Ha! Could he write and whistle at the same time? I don't think so. I knew a boy who whistled all of the time, and his mother said, stop whistling. What are you going to be, a professional, professional whistler when you grow up? He didn't stop. He learned how to hum melody while whistling harmony and was on The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson, many types. This has nothing to do with little people, but it is a good lesson to learn. Fern was shaking the diary. She was frustrated because nothing had fallen out in a couple of days. It was as if something was stuck. Fern shook hard, as hard as she could. She felt the book's heaviness. It was as heavy as she'd ever felt a book to be. 
She shook and shook, and then she saw something poking out. Black leather. She grabbed it with both hands and had a rubber underside. What is it? The bone asked, unable to look over at Fern. <laughs> Fern pulled and pulled, and she pulled some more until out popped an orthopedic lace-up shoe complete with a foot and thin, knee-high stockings. Mrs. Applebaum's foot! Fern let out a yelp. Then she heard a scream. What in holy heck? Mrs. Appleplum climbed, cried out from the bathroom. Help me! Fern flipped the diary around. She shook and jiggled until the foot disappeared. The bone ran to the bathroom and knocked loudly on the door. Fern closed the diary and ran to join the, the bone. Everything was silent a moment. Mrs. Appleplum opened the door and poked her head out. I just had the strangest sensation that someone was pulling my leg. She stared at the bone, then at Fern. Really? You mean a prank? Someone is joking with you? The, burn asked, the bone asked. <laughs> said Mrs. Appleplum. Never you mind. And they shut the door. As soon as they were back in the bedroom, the fern started asking, the bone started asking questions. What happened? What was it? Fern shrugged. I don't really know, she lied. Weird. You know, I think Mrs. Appleplum is strange. I think you're right about her. But what was coming out of the book? Nothing, Fern said, lying some more. Are you sure? The bone asked, sensing the lie. I was just angry with it, frustrated. I should be more careful. Well, that's the truth, said the bone. Maybe I'll try some decoding, Fern said. Good idea. I'm going to rest a minute. The bone lay down on his bed and, without even much thinking about it, fell fast asleep. You must be wondering why Fern would lie like that about Mrs. Appleplum's foot miraculously popping out of a book. Fern was being dishonest, and that's not a good thing to be at all. And Fern was having trouble, in general, pretending to be someone other than herself. But sometimes people tell fibs. Sometimes people don't divulge everything they know. It's true. I once told someone that my mother was a famous flamingo dancer, and I was caught because it's flamenco dancer, not flamingo, and that was quite embarrassing for me, and so I swore off telling lies. That's how you know that every word of this book, every single one, is true. Fern was lying because her mind was working very, very quickly. If she could shake out her grandmother's orthopedic rubber sole shoe, bunions and all, she was wondering if she could shake someone else out of the book. She was, in fact, wondering if she could shake her mother out of the book. Why not? It was, after all, her mother's diary. She knew deep down that this wasn't a good idea. She knew that the bone would probably talk her out of such a thing. Fern didn't tell him because she didn't want to be talked out of it. She wanted her mother to slip out of this book. Landed days. Landing days, but beautifully so. She wanted to whisper to her mother, It's me, Fern. I'm your daughter. And for her mother to wrap her arms around her and kiss her. And so, once the bone was asleep, she decided she would give the diary one spectacular shake, one enormously huge shake. The house was quiet now. Mrs. Appleplum was probably already asleep, like the bone, with his loud snores. The miser was the only one awake, and he was far off working in the barn, with a miniature flashlight gripped in his teeth so he could dig with both hands. But Fern didn't feel at ease in the house. Her mother's appearance could be a noisy one. So Fern slipped out of her bedroom, her mother's diary clamped under her arm. She walked down the stairs, through the parlor, through the kitchen to a small back door. The night was warm, but there was a soft breeze. Fern decided she would need to be somewhere high so she could jump down with all of her force. She saw the distant peach tree, its one peach swollen as full as the moon. Fern walked to it and shimmied up the trunk in her pajamas. She climbed down on a thick branch and paused a minute. You owe me a favor! A little voice said, you, hey, you. Fern looked around. I, I, you owe me.
Daddy, I say, I say. And there at the base of the tree was the red-headed fairy in the gray dress Mrs. Appleplum had sewn with one of Fern's pansies clipped to a belt. Let me say right up front that I am not comfortable with this fairy. This is the narrator talking, not Fern. There's something each time I write about her that makes me feel a little silly, like this is a silly book, not one to be taken seriously. And I think at least that this isn't a silly book at all. But I have to be true to the story. That's what my old writing teacher told me time and again. Be true to the story. Be true to the story. He'd go on and on with that line like he was beating a drum in the Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade. I'm not so sure he knew what he was talking about at all. In any case, I'm going to be true to the story. And unfortunately, the story has a fairy in it. An angry fairy. The kind of fairy who would put a bumper sticker on her car. <laughs> a car? <laughs> that said something like, if you can read this, you're too close to my car. Back off! That is, if fairies had cars, which I don't think they do. You shouldn't be out here, you know, the fairy said. You should be practicing. There are a lot of us here who are counting on you. Counting on me? Yes, you. Who else? The fairy was angry. Her face was pinched as if she'd bitten into a bitter prune. I can't understand how dense you people are. Dense, Fern said. I'm not so dense that I don't know when someone's stolen something from me. That pansy yours? Where then are my barrettes? The fairy was furious now. This pansy and those barrettes were a gift from a friend. How dare you? And she took her t shook her tiny fist in the air menacingly. I could bite you when you least expect it. Right on the ankle. And my teeth are sharp. <laughs> she stormed off back toward the house. Fern didn't care about the pansies or the barrettes at all. But she hadn't liked being called dense either. She hadn't been expected. She hadn't been expecting to be confronted like this, but maybe the fairy was right, and Fern did owe her something. She had shaken her from the comfortable confines of her book onto the floor, mid-bath, but she didn't understand who else was counting on her, and counting on her for what exactly? Fern felt nervous. She opened the diary and noticed that her hands were trembling. But she had to go through with it. She had to. If her mother came out of the book, oh, how she would thank Fern. You saved me. You brought me back. Fern opened the book as wide as she possibly, possibly could. She drew the diary up over her head with one hand and swung the diary as hard as she could while jumping from the branch. Her hair lifted up over her head. Her pajamas billowed like a parachute. The night air was cool on her skin and the diary was heavy. So heavy that Fern hit the ground hard, bruising her knees and the heels of her hands. The diary had come loose from her grip, but Fern wasn't thinking about that now. Uh, at the same t moment Fern had fallen, there had been another louder thump. Fern's eyes were closed, but she knew something was before her, something alive, breathing. She whispered, oh, please, oh, please. And when she opened her eyes, she was blinded by a bright, bright light. There was an angry voice. What is this? What have you done, Miss, Miss Bibb? A dark figure rose from the roots of the tree. It was the miser. He said the word Bibb like an accusation. How on earth did I get here? I was just in the barn, and now I'm here. How magical. He lowered his voice. You are in trouble, Miss Bibb. Deep, deep trouble. Actually, I can clear all of this up. I can clear it right up. Fern started rambling fast. This time she felt skilled at it and used the chatter, which might have once stayed stored in her head to hold the miser's attention. It worked for a little while. I'm very good at clearing things up. In fact, if there are a word for clearing things up, then I would have a ton of awards and trophies and medals. That's how good I am at it. And if you ask me, I think there should be awards for things like the ability to clear things up. It would be nice if things were, in general, clearer, in my opinion. But then the miser's interest started to wander. His flashlight glanced away from Fern's face to the diary on the ground. What a what have we here? Is this a diary? 
Have you shaken me through a diary? Who's been writing about me? He picked up the book and opened to the front page. Don't, Fern said, but it was too late. Eliza? My Eliza? The miser said. His voice became soft. His shoulders curled toward the book. He was astonished, suddenly wide-eyed with love. The miser said, oh, how she loved me. She loved me. And in a weird trance-like state, he held on to his flashlight in the diary and turned, turned and seemed to nearly float across the yard to the back door. Fern followed him, although he paid her no attention. I need that diary, she said. Excuse me, but it's quite important that I have that diary. The miser opened the screen door and it slammed before Fern had her the chance to catch it. Just as she put her hand on the small metal handle, she heard Mrs. Appleplum's voice. Fern pressed her back to the side of the house and froze. What's this, Mr. Hazer Blatherness? What are you doing up and about? Are you okay? What's that glaze to your eyes? Have you been sleepwalking? Yes, Fern said, now tripping to the door. He has been sleepwalking. I saw him from my window, and I followed him around to the back of the house. The miser snapped, too. He glanced at Fern and then at Mrs. Appleplum and around the kitchen. What? I haven't been sleeping. Sleepwalking? This little girl, she... she... Hush now, Mrs. Appleplum said. No, you don't understand. You've had a bad dream, dear, Mrs. Appleplum said reassuringly. You know, it's quite dangerous to sleepwalk. Come, come, take my hand. The miser shrank a bit, glowering at Fern over his shoulder. Um, he took Mrs. Appleplum's hand with grave embarrassment. Mrs. Appleplum wasn't someone you could say no to. They filed through the kitchen maze, through the parlor. Here, I'll hold this stuff for you, Fern offered, taking a hold of the diary and the flashlight. No, the miser said, snatching them back. Don't you dare. No, no, now, Mr. Hazer Blatherness, don't raise your voice like that. You need to let go of these things. Ida is being courteous, and we have to encourage that in children, or we'll raise a generation with no manners at all. The miser sighed deeply. Mrs. Appleplum took the diary and flashlight and handed them to Fern. Thank you, Ida, Mrs. Appleplum said. Fern grabbed onto the diary and the flashlight, feeling very relieved. The bone met them at the bottom of the stairs. I heard a commotion. Is everything all right? Uh, Mrs. Appleplum explained. Mr. Hazer Blatherness has been sleepwalking. Will you too, Ida and Mr. Bibb, do me a favor and tie him down for the night? He could get hurt if he sleepwalks again. No, no, the miser said. Not necessary. I'm fine. No problem, said the bone. We don't mind. We'd be happy to tie Mr. Hazer Blatherness down for the night. See what good friends you've made. They don't mind helping you out in your, in your time of need, Mr. Hazer Blatherness. Not one bit. Stay here while I get some rope. <laughs> I don't think that's what he was expecting. <laughs> okay, chapter. Oh, man, there's not very much left. Whew, but I wonder if I should. I don't know that I can fit it all. Well, I'll keep going until it runs out because I can only fit 60 minutes, and I'm at 51 minutes. How much more can I read in? How many minutes are left? Just 60, from 51 to 60? Yeah, you're right, nine minutes. Okay, here we go. Let's see, first segment is 60 minutes. All right, here we go. Chapter, part two, part four, chapter two. <laughs> Mrs. Appleplum went downstairs to get rope from a utility closet next to the kitchen. It stored mostly books, of course, but there were also a few light bulbs, tulip bulbs, a screwdriver, the general utilities. She left Fern and the Bone and the Miser in the hallway together, where the Miser was unlocking his bedroom door. This isn't necessary, the Miser said. Isn't it, Mr. Hazer Blatherness? Fern asked. No, it isn't, and you know it. 
The bum said calmly, Do you want to tell Mrs. Sappleplum that you aren't Mr. Hazer Blatherness, but you are in fact the miser? Fern held on tightly to the diary. Her eyes darted between the two men. The bone looked like Mr. Bibb, but tough. His chin jutted out defiantly. Although Fern couldn't see the miser's eyes beneath his enormous saggy eyebrows, she knew that he was glaring at the bone. His cheeks flushed a deep red. I could blow your cover too, you know that. I would blow your cover first, the bone countered. And then we'll all be thrown out of this house, Fern whispered. Is that a good idea? Just then, Mrs. Appleflum was climbing the stairs with her brittle bones. I've got it, she sang out in a rippling voice. Here. She handed the rope to, who'd she hand it to? Handed the rope to the bone. Now, she said, sighing, I'm going to bed. Best of luck. I'll be up early in the morning to untie you. She gave the miser a pat-pat on his shoulder. And Mrs. Appleplum walked off to her bedroom at the end of the hall. The miser opened his bedroom door and rushed to a small writing table, covered with a pile of what looked to be hand-scrawled notes on white sheets of paper. He stuffed them into his pockets. It was a small, hot room, also piled high with books. There was one dark window open just a crack. There was a black trunk, closed, and a large, empty sack on the floor. Fern remembered that when they had first arrived, Mrs. Appleplum told them about another guest who had shown up with a trunk and an unusual sack stuffed tight. Fern wondered what had been in it. Let's get this over with, the miser said bitterly, lying down on his narrow bed. The fern and bone started to secure the ropes as best they could, but Fern wasn't so sure that it mattered. Couldn't he easily get out of ropes? He'd already turned into a bull, for goodness sake. Still got my men working. My little army is shoveling through books in the barn at this very moment. And these ropes are a formality, you know, the visor said. I've gotten to be quite a good anybody, Bone. I've gotten better at transforming than you'd ever have imagined. You realize that your daughter here shook me from a book. Not just any book. She shook me from Eliza's diary. The Bone glanced sharply at Fern, who didn't look at him but kept her head down, fiddling with the ropes. Eliza loved me, Bone. She was writing about me. She was writing that she loved me. Think about it, Bone. Think. The Bone reared. He turned away from the miser, but Fern kept maneuvering around with the ropes, tying this way and that. A breeze kicked up from the window, and there was a rustling noise under the bed. She wondered if anyone else had heard it. She didn't think so. The room was charged with angry tension between the miser and the Bone. The miser kept at it. And look at you, Mr. Bibb. Ha! You can't even pull off a successful encyclopedia salesman. Is it slipping, that fake mustache of yours? No, the bone said. It's real. Oh, and that lisp is real, too. I can't believe you were once my teacher. Fern gave the ropes an angry yank and knotted them on a leg of the bed, which gave her the opportunity to peek underneath. There she saw a remarkable sight, a white fluttering sea of paper. Now she knew what had been stuffed in the sack, envelopes. Some thin, some fat, but envelopes, envelopes, addressed and stamped. Why didn't he just leave them in the sack, Fern wondered? Why did he put them under the bed? Was he the type who needed to unpack to feel settled? The drudgers always unpacked their suitcases and folded their clothes in hotel bureaus, as a rule. Or was it that, for some reason, he'd like to go through the envelopes, sorting them? What was in those envelopes? Was it some evil that comforted him? The wind kicked up again, and they all rustled like birds. The miser didn't seem to be aware of Fern at all. You're worthless now, Bone, and you were worthless then. Whew, that is harsh. The Bone was turned towards the door, his back bristling. He couldn't look at the miser. How could she have ever truly loved you, Bone? I'll find that book first. I'm smarter than you. Think about it. I'll find the book first. Think about it. Think about it. 
The miser's voice was changing now. Fern recognized the sing-song of hypnosis. Fern was scared suddenly. Was the miser trying to hypnotize the bone? She thought of grabbing a few envelopes, not many, just a few, but she couldn't. She didn't have the pockets. She didn't have pockets. She was holding the diary. How would she hide the envelopes? She wanted to know what was inside them, but she didn't have time. She needed to get Bone away from that voice. She stood up. Let's go! Think about it. Think about it. Think, think. I'm close to finding that book. I'm so close. You'll never beat me to it. Think about it. The miser was staying. Stop it, the fern said to the miser. Stop. It won't work. She grabbed her father's arm, opened the door, and shoved the bone into the hallway. Stop, the miser said. Fern wasn't sure if he was mocking her or the bone or both of them. The miser was shaking now, his whole body trembling under the rope. The ropes. Stop, he said. He gave one violent shake and his body writhered into the shape of a large gray snake, its scales glinting in the lamplight. The snake hissed at Fern and started slipping from the ropes. Fern grabbed the miser's key off his small desk, jumped out of the door. She slammed it and locked the room up tight. Fern and the Bone walked quickly down the hallway. They stepped into their bedroom and shut the door. The Bone looked rattled, worn out, like a wind-beaten kite. Are you okay? Fern asked. She felt giddy. What if he is close, Fern? His spies are digging right now, the Bone asked. The Bone said, glancing out the window toward the barn. What if he finds the art of being anybody first? Are you sure you're okay? He didn't hypnotize you, did he? Of course not. I know his tricks. I was hunging a song in my head. I was blocking him out with it. Fern knew the song he'd been humming. Sweet, sweet, my sweet darling, where have you gone? Where have you gone? It seemed to always be on his mind. You know what was in that sack of his? Letters. That's what he does in there when he isn't looking for books. He's writing letters. He used to write letters when he was a good anybody. He used to write the loveliest letters, invitations, apologies. He used to write love letters to your mother, and they made her cry because she didn't love him back, but they were so beautiful. Can you imagine what kind of letters he's writing now? Hate mail, blackmail, who knows? But I can tell you this, I'm going to stay up late tonight and decode this diary. I'm sure Eliza would have confided where she hid that, hid that book. I'm sure she would. I hope so, Fern said, sitting down on her bed. I hope there are some clues. We have no clues. The bone sat down next to her. Fern, he said, I wanted, but then he trailed off. What, Fern asked. I wanted to tell you that I know. What? I know why you shook the diary so hard, he paused. Doesn't work that way. He shook his head. His eyes were misty again, and Fern wondered if he would ever really cry. She can't come back. She was buried in a cemetery. There's a tombstone with her name on it. She can't come out of a book. Your mother, she's gone. Oh, Fern said. She felt like crying, but she didn't either. She kind of knew that it wouldn't work. It had been a long shot. She said, I just thought... I know, the bone said. I know what you thought. He squeezed her shoulder, and then they both felt quiet. So quiet that the only thing they could hear was the miser hissing in his locked room down the hall. Whew. All right. That brings us to the end of part four, chapter two. I will be back with the rest. I think I'll put it on this same episode so you can hear all the rest of it together. All right. See you soon. Okay, I'm back. You ready? These are the last few chapters of The Anybodies. I wonder when they're going to reveal their true identities and if they will ever find the, what's it called? How to be an anybody.
All right, let's see. Part four, chapter three, the uprising. Finish your breakfast quickly, dear, quickly. I knew this day would come. Mrs. Appleton was chirping in the kitchen. Oh my, she said, I just knew it. Hurry, hurry. Fern was eating toast with marmalade, which reminded her of a bear who lived in England named Paddington. A British bear whom she used to read about when she was a bit younger. She'd actually planned on canceling her lesson with Mrs. Appleplum today. She wanted to go back upstairs to relieve the bone, who'd been trying to decode the diary all night while she slept. She wanted to switch places with him. He looked awful, bleary-eyed, bedraggled. What is it? Mrs. Uh, Fern asked. Is it Mr. Hazer Blatherness? Has he done something? Done something? Mrs. Appleplum looked at her perplexed. No, I don't think so. Do you think he's broken something in his room? He'll have to pay for that, you know. No, I was just asking. Mr. Hazer Blatherness is fine, as far as I know. I untied him this morning. He looked well rested. But I do wonder if your father's lisp isn't contagious, because Mr. Blather Hazer Blatherness sure had a strange S in his words. Well, I've never caught the lisp, Byrne said, although she knew very well why Mr. Hazer Blatherness was still a bit hissy. She'd been thinking about him this morning. Those envelopes were on her mind. What was he writing? Why did he keep them, even after addressing and stamping them? Why didn't he just mail them? Mrs. Appleplum went on. In any case, the point is, are you done eating? Fern nodded. The point is, come on, come on. She held on to Fern's arm and walked her briskly to the back door. We have a problem. Fern opened the screen door and stared at the backyard. Straight ahead, beside the peach tree, was a line of creatures. She recognized some. Furry-footed hobbits and the red-headed fairy still wearing the pansy, now slightly wilted, clipped to her belt. There was also a scowling rat, perhaps the same one who'd stuck his tongue out at her, and two rabbits, one nervous older rabbit, and the younger, more casual, almost cool, if a rabbit can be cool. Fern recognized them from the front yard, where she'd once seen them chatting together, and there was one squirrel who was, uh, squirrely. Okay, this is the narrator again. Here, let me interrupt, if you'd be so kind to say, if you think I had trouble writing about the fairy, you can imagine that I'm going to struggle with the hobbits, and, well, the talking animals will be my downfall. I don't like talking animals as a rule. Not that I would be rude to a talking animal if I came across one. I wouldn't, of course. But luckily, I've never had that kind of awkward encounter. I suppose Aesop started the trend. Well, there was that serpent who talked to Eve in the garden, but... Why did the trend have to persist generation after generation with their talking animals? It's ridiculous. I wish I didn't have to be a party to it. And yet, I'm handcuffed to the story here. And I'm sorry to say, in this story, there are some talking animals. It's not my fault. The fault of the people who wrote the other books in the first place. I guess this is what I'm saying. If you are deeply offended by talking animals, I completely understand. Fern, unlike me, was fine with talking animals. Some people are. And so... What do they want? Fern asked. They want you. Why me? Fern asked. They need help, Ida, and you're the only one who can help them. Fern was worried. She remembered the mean fairy from the night before. She was a little afraid of her. How? How can I help them? Fern asked. The books, Mrs. Appleplum said through her teeth, smiling. The books. The fairy started first. I've organized this uprising. There are things we need, and some of us want to go back. She's got to help us. It's not our fault we're here. Now, now, let's remain civilized, said the nervous rabbit in a genteel British accent. Don't make her angry. Fern could see that he was fiddling with a gold watch on a chain, somewhat like the one Bone used for hypnosis, but this one was much, much smaller. Oh, do you know who that is? I think he's from Alice in Wonderland. The rat paced. Just get on with it. The squirrel blinked and flicked its tail. 
The hobbits looked skittish and a little sheepish. One said, we only want what's simple. We have but simple needs, and only if it isn't any trouble. We don't want to trouble you. Wait, just wait, Fern said. Are you all angry because you're not in your books? The fairy said, I want to go back. The others shook their heads. The nervous rabbit raised his hand. I may like to go back, perhaps. But the younger rabbit nudged him in the ribs and said to Fern, no, he don't. They decided to go one at a time. The hobbits, it turned out, much preferred living here in Mrs. Appleplum's front yard. It was safer and quieter than the book they'd come from, and they could enjoy their routines, their small comforts. It was just that they missed some of their favorite ale and tea and pipeweed. <laughs> Mrs. Appleplum had already compiled the books Fern would need. The Hobbit was the first book in the pile. Fern concentrated and shook, and sure enough, she got a nice barrel of ale and a few canisters of tea. Are you sure you need the pipeweed? Is it really good for you? She asked. They shuffled their furry feet. Not especially, <coughs> one admitted with a little cough. This is fine, another said, thank you so very much. We're, we aren't worthy of so much goodness. And another, how can we repay you? We must repay you. Thank you kindly. The chubby hobbits started rolling their barrel to their underground homes in the front yard. They were very spirited. We should taste it, don't you think? At this hour of the day, we shouldn't drink it. We should simply taste it to see if it made it through well enough. I suppose we could. And the other nodded and soon they got in cups and were sipping the ale, tasting and tasting to make sure it hadn't soured. The young rabbit oh, introduced himself as Peter, and he was wearing his blue jacket, but it was a mess. Grass-stained elbows, the brass buttons all popped loose. He wants to get rid of his watch, Peter told Fern, pointing with a jerk of his head to the older rabbit. He wants it to go back in the book. You see, said the older rabbit, I'm always afraid. I'm terribly late, late, late for something quite important, and Peter has really taught me that I must calm myself and have adventures. Do you agree with him, Fern asked? I do, but I'm frightened. Well, the problem is that I can't put things back in books. I can only get them out. The red-headed fairy erupted. Well, what, are you, what good are you then? And she started to stomp off. But then Mrs. Appleplum whispered, actually, you can put things back. I just haven't shown you how yet. It's quite easy. Fern remembered then when Mrs. Appleplum's foot had started to come out of the book, she did jiggle it back in as fast as she could. Wait, wait, Fern yelled to the fairy. I can try. So the red-headed fairy slouched back to the group. Let me start with the gold watch, Fern said. The old rabbit handed Fern the watch hesitantly. Are you sure? He's sure, Peter said. Mrs. Appleplum placed the gold watch on top of the open pages of Alice's Adventure in Wonderland. Concentrate, she said. Jiggle softly. And sure enough, like sifting sand, the gold watch disappeared into the book. Did it work? Did it work? The fairy asked. Yes, yes, it did, announced Mrs. Appleplum. What do you want? Fern asked the rat. My name is Templeton. <laughs> oh, I know you, Fern said. I'm named, but she stopped herself just in time. She didn't want to bring up the girl named Fern in Charlotte's Web, which Mrs. Appleplum had on top of the pile now. She corrected herself and said, I'm named Ida Bibb. Great, fine. I'd rather not say it to the whole group, okay? Okay, Fern said, and she bent down so we could whisper. I miss you, though. Folks in the book. You mean Wilbur? Shh, his eyes started around. Well, maybe. Do you want to go back? Keep it down, would you? Templeton said, then he added loudly. It's just that they need me in that darn book. It's very important. Everything will fall apart without me. <laughs> okay, okay. Fern let Templeton climb up on the book. She jiggled. He started to sink in. He gave a sharp nod for a goodbye. But as soon as he was gone, he his rump reappeared. He was pushed back out. Let me in! Fern could hear him shouting, come on, let me back in! Finally, after a bit of a struggle, he was secured in the book. Fern shut it quickly. 
Then the fairy, that left the fairy and the squirrel. The fairy said, I want to go back. You see, I love it there. It's a wonderful place. Let's try, Fern said. The fairy climbed up onto the opened pages of the complete guide to fairies. Wait, she said, handing Fern the barrettes and starting to unclip the pansy. Here, these are yours. The borrowers gave them to me. You can keep them, Fern told her. They were never really me, if you know what I mean. Thank you, the fairy said. If this works, if you pull this off, you can shake this book any time and you'll have a whole army of fairies to help you. That's a promise. Thanks, Fern said, and she concentrated very hard. She was still afraid of a nasty ankle bite. She jiggled, and the fairy disappeared. One left, Mrs. Appleplum said. Now, what book are you from? She asked the squirrel. The squirrel was glancing around at the house and up the tree and at the hobbits, who, quite unlike themselves, had gotten so joyously carried away they were singing a pub song about a woman named Adeline. One belched and excused himself profusely, and then another farted, terribly embarrassed. Fern could smell the cheesy air from where she stood downwind. What do you want, Fern asked the squirrel. Do you want something? But the squirrel didn't really want anything. As it turned out, it was just a regular squirrel. And thank goodness for that. They really needed just a regular squirrel. He blinked his eyes and dashed off. Chapter Part 4, Chapter 4. Wild Drudgers on Tamed Hedge Row. Oh, I forgot about them. Just then, the bone stuck his head out the back door. Ida, meet me at the car. We've got to head out. We've got a, uh, an errand to run. He looked at Mrs. Appleplum. Encyclopedias. Just a quick jaunt. Mrs. Appleplum looked at Fern. Thank you for helping. You're very good, you know. Thanks, said Fern, and she nearly reached out and grabbed Mrs. Appleplum. She could feel her arms almost rise and hug her. Fern remembered the kiss Mrs. Appleplum had planted on her cheek. Fern wanted to hug her, but would Mrs. Appleplum hug her back? Fern couldn't be sure, and so she didn't. She resisted. Instead, she ran off, bounding past the tipsy hobbits, who thanked her again with a small chorus of proper cheer, and around the house into the Bones wheezing car. The bone drove the wobbly car down the long driveway, the diary jostling in the seat between them. Where are we going? Fern asked. Howard, the bone said. Howard is the key. It struck me, Fern. The diary is a pattern, and patterns can be mathematical equations. The diary has words and numbers like algebra. Howard will be able to crack this code, I tell you. Howard, of course. Why hadn't Fern thought of him? Howard was at the Drudgers. Are you taking me back to Tamed Hedge Road? The bone nodded. Where else? What would she think of her house now that she'd been through so much? She went through the dates in her head. Math camp would be over with. That was good. And vacation at Lost Lake wouldn't start for a while yet. Would the drudgers have missed her? Had she missed them? While they drove, Fern told the bone about the hobbits, the rabbits, Templeton, and the squirrel. Do you think we'll ever need an army of fairies? You never can tell. I almost hugged Mrs. Appleplum, Fern said. You didn't tell her you're her granddaughter, did you? No, Fern said, of course not. What she didn't say was that she really wanted to, that she was dying to tell her. Good, the bone said. Keep your eyes peeled for butterflies. I've asked the great Rialdo to help us out, and, well, that's the formula I can take with me. Fern kept watch. They passed an old gas station. It was boarded up, but through its dusty windows, Fern could see it was packed with old stuff, furniture and dusty junk. The old pumps looked familiar, and Fern remembered the background of the photograph her mother of her mother swaying, maybe dancing. Mm. They drove on until Fern knew the streets, the familiar turns. There was a certain well-worn comfort. She closed her eyes as the car got closer to Tame Hedge Road. There was no denying the gravitational pull toward her old house. The pause at the stop sign, the dip in the intersection, the clunk of the manhole cover. The bone bumped the car over the curve and into the driveway. Her body knew its way there so well. Had this been home all along? 
and she hadn't and she just hadn't been able to recognize it? Maybe. Wouldn't that be a simple fix? Fern opened her eyes, and there they were, the cream house with cream shutters on tamed hedgerow. Fern felt a familiar tightening in her chest. She narrowed her eyes. It was an instinct. She patted down the front fluff of her wild hair. No, Fern thought, this isn't home. This is the Drudger's home, not mine. Now, I'm sure you haven't been thinking too much about Howard's vacation with the Drudger's, but I can tell you it's been an unusual one. First of all, no matter how happily ordinary how happily ordinary Howard is, no matter how much he admired and craved the Drudger's dullness, he was brought up by the bone. And there's no avoiding the fact that the bone had influenced him. The bone had made him a little adventurous, just a little tiny bit. So this is what happened. Howard became very good friends with Milton Beige, the chubby beige boy with the bald tip nose whom Fern was supposed to marry one day. While doing math problems for fun, Howard told Milton the secret, flipped out, hypnosis. Milton goaded Howard into proving it. I don't believe you, he said. So Howard decided to make it clear. Howard wasn't a great hypnotist. Keep that in mind. He was taught by the bone, but was in a fragile state and not very confident in his own skills. So, it only took a second for Fern to notice that something was wrong at the Drudger household. The grass was much too long. The boxy front hedge had a few wild branches shooting up from it. There was grass growing in the sidewalk cracks. Cracks and the racket of crickets, which she'd never heard before from her yard, was noisy. Fern jumped out of the car. She raced to the front door. What is it, Fern? What's wrong? The bone asked. To his untrained eye, things seemed just fine. It's all wrong, Fern told him. She twisted the doorknob, but it was locked. She pounded on the door and buzzed the bell, one long buzz. Then she stopped and listened. She heard weird noises, screeching. Did she hear screeching? Who is it? asked a, fern, a voice that Fern didn't recognize. It's me, Ida. No, Fern, Fern. She nearly said Fern Drudger, but then she said, she thought, no, Bone. By this point, Fern didn't know what to say. Just let me in, she said. This is my house. Oh, well, this is Milton Beige, and I'm unable to open the door at this moment. I, I can't just now. Why don't you come back later? Open up, Milton, Fern said. The Bone was standing next to her now. Open the door. I'm here, too. Tell Howard that it's the Bone. The door unlocked. Milton's round nose and big beige cheeks appeared. Come in quick, he said. Howard, his face flushed, was standing behind Milton. Hello, he said with a sigh. Fern and the Bone were hustled inside. The house was a wreck. The ceiling light in the hall entranceway was gone. In its space, the place was a splotch of broken plaster and a handful of wires. We can explain, said Milton, his voice high with nerves. See, we got a little bored. I made a mistake, Howard said. It's all my fault. See, I didn't know it until I met Howard, but I've been bored all my life, Milton broke in. But see, no, Fern said, I don't see what happened. Frustrated, she pushed past Howard and Milton and ran from room to room. The closet doors were thrown open and coats and scarves were strewn everywhere. Mr. Drudger's work umbrella was propped open and hanging from the ceiling fan, slowly revolving in the kitchen. There were muddy footprints, small like a dog's footprints, all over the beige carpeting. Banana peels splayed on the coffee table. The Drudger's painting in their living room, of their living room, in their living room, was completely crooked. And still there were screechy noises coming upstairs, from upstairs, and padding and thumping. What's happened here, Howard? The Bone asked. I made a mistake. I wanted to impress Milton. I wanted to prove I could do it, and Milton had a gold watch from his grandfather. I showed it to the Drudger's. I racked it back and forth, and their eyes latched on so easily. I wanted them to be fun. I wanted them to have fun. Milton broke in. Honestly, sir, for all the bad stuff that's happened here, I can honestly say that I have had fun. And the drudgers, sir, are more fun. 
Fern was charging up the stairs now. She followed the noise until she came to her parents' bedroom. The door was closed. She paused, and Howard charged to the door, blocking it with his body. Look, Fern, they were so dull I had to do something. I had to at least try. Let me see, Howard, for myself, Fern said. She pushed Howard out of the way and opened the door. And there they were, Mr. and Mrs. Drudger. They were still dressed like themselves, khakis, button-downs. But Mrs. Drudger was jumping on the bed, and Mr. Drudger was hanging on the doorknob of the closet. They were both squatting, waddling, their chins out, their lips pursing and unpursing. They were oo-ooing and hee-heeing. Mrs. Drudger's hair was wild and somewhat matted. Mr. Drudger was unshaven. The bone said, yep, I've seen this kind of thing before. Our system isn't perfect. It has some kinks, Fern said. I'd say it has some kinks. Milton was standing in the hallway, too, breathless from having bounded up the stairs. He wasn't used to such exercise. Aren't they magnificent creatures? You are a menace, Fern said. How could you two do this? It's completely unfair. How long have they been like this, Howard? How long? Milton walked into the bedroom. He pulled some grapes out of his pocket, and the drudgers wandered over to him. They plucked the grapes from his dimpled hand and popped them into their mouths. A week, I guess. I tried to get in touch, but you all weren't home. Have you moved? Just for a little bit, the bone said. And you didn't tell me? Howard looked hurt. We weren't far, the bone said. We were trying to get the book. We're getting closer. It's why we're here. The bone handed Howard the diary. We found this, but we needed to decode it. And I thought if anyone could do it, you could. Howard eyed the diary. I can try, I guess, he said. Fern was still in shock. She was watching Mr. and Mrs. Drudger eat grapes and pick at Milton's hair. We should try to get them back, shouldn't we? Fern questioned. But then she really looked at them. They were all cuddled up, talking to each other in low monkey chatter. They appeared so loving now, as one sniffed the other's head. Shouldn't we? I love them like this, Milton smiled. Let them be happy a little while longer, just a little. You don't understand, he said. This is a beautiful thing, I tell you. The bone shrugged. Howard said, I've tried. They just won't look at me long enough to really settle into dehypnosis. It's like they know, and they don't want to. It'll wear off. Milton said, we bought a monkey costume. Howard is going to take Mr. Drudger to the bank and get him to cash some checks. I think folks will think he's being funny, you know, annoyingly in character. But they've got to let him take the money out. Sounds like a clever plan, and you know I love clever plans, but are you okay? The bone asked Howard. Really? It's actually kind of fun. I sort of like taking care of them. And, you know, it's good for Milton. Look at him. Milton was climbing on the bed now, jumping with them. Fern smiled. Well, I guess it's good for all for them all, somehow. Howard opened the diary. This might take a while, he said. It might be a tough code to crack. You can do it, Fern said. I'll try, Howard said. He walked downstairs to the front door. Did they get fired from Beige and Beige? Fern asked. No, Milton told me to call in some personal vacation time. You know, they had a lot of unused vacation days. I know, Fern said. She wandered away from the bone and Howard into the living room. She walked to the painting of the living room and moved it so it hung straight. She could hear the bone saying, here's my phone number. Call us as soon as you think you've got it. And Howard saying that he would as soon as he could. Howard and the bone didn't hug. The bone didn't do that thing, that kind of thing. While they shook hands, Fern shut her eyes and slowly lifted her hand to the painting. She tried to glide her hands into the painting, thinking to herself, no, it isn't possible. It couldn't be. Not here. Her fingers were stopped. They bounced off the canvas. Then she heard the monkey noises overhead, and she tried again, thinking this time that it was possible, that anything was possible, really. These things weren't supposed, that things weren't, weren't what they seemed to be. And this time, her fingers did slip into the painting. Fern patted the fuzz of the beige carpeting, a replica of the beige carpeting she was standing on in that very moment. 
Fern was astonished that she'd had this power all along and had never known it. Feeling jittery, she pulled her hand out of the painting and quickly walked back to Howard and the Bone. I'm proud of you, son, the Bone said. You're part my boy, even though you're a dredger. You know that? Just then, there was a loud screeching from upstairs, the dredgers howling like monkeys. There's no denying it, Howard said. No denying it. <laughs> oh, my. Part 4, Chapter 5, The Limp. Oh, I think there's going to be another part. Oh, my. This book is funny. Okay. Stay focused now. Stay sharp. That's my advice because things... Oh, this is the narrator. That's my advice because things may pick up speed and get a little jostled like those roller coaster boxcars on their tight loopy tracks. And I don't want you to topple out or something dreadful like that. I'm doing the best I can. And I can't think of any advice from my old writing instructor that would help me now. He never wrote a book with so much going on. In fact, his books are dry and dusty. Big fatty books that sit on library shelves until you check them out just to let them get some air. Because you feel sorry for them. I hope the rest of this goes well. I can hear that roller coaster motor chugging and whining. And actually, I don't like roller coasters. Once I got off one and threw up on my shoes. <laughs> okay. The miser has had some time to think. Once he turned himself back into the miser, and especially while he was waiting for Mrs. Appleplum to shuffle in and untie him, he was thinking. He was shaking the blurred vision of love from his head, and he was putting things together. He knew Fern had Eliza's diary, and that Fern was jiggling things from it. That's how the miser ended up under the peach tree. But if Eliza had written about the art of being anybody, how couldn't she have? Fern could possibly even shake the book from the diary. So he was nearly convinced that Fern already had the art of being anybody, or almost. By the time he was untied and starting out of the room, he had one more question. What was more important to Fern than one than the book? What? The old jalopy was acting up even more than usual. When the bone and Fern drove in the long driveway and parked, the bone got out of the car and lifted its rusted hood to look at the engine. Fern went inside the house to tell Mrs. Appleplum that they were expecting a very important phone call and that they'd want to answer the phone from now on if that was okay with her. Mrs. Appleplum? Fern called. Mrs. Appleplum? There was no answer. So Fern called out again, but this time she called for Mr. Hazer Blatherness. You see, ever since Fern was in the miser's room, she was dying to know what he was writing. The letters in those envelopes hadn't gone very far from her mind. Was it part of a dastardly plot of his? The house seemed empty. Maybe this was her chance. She walked up the stairs, calling again and again for Mr. Hazer Blatherness. Still no answer. She called once more in front of his door, then turned the knob. It opened easily. She'd taken the key the night before, and they'd had no way of locking it on his way out. Fern couldn't help but think there was something alive in the room. The window was open now, and the envelopes under the bed were still rustling. Fern moved to the desk. There were envelopes with Mrs. Appleton's address on them and other letters sitting out. Fern started reading. Dear Mrs. Appleplum, I'm sorry I didn't attend breakfast and apologize for any rudeness last night. I am not myself. Sincerely, M. The next letter read, Dear Mother, the wind is warm here and I miss you terribly. Tell Sister Imogene that I think of her. I often wonder if she married the grocer. I hope Father's back has held up from has held up from all of his strong man lifting and that he stopped eating those nails. <laughs> it isn't good for his digestion. It's been many years since I've been in touch. As you know, I haven't been myself. Love, M. There were letters to Imogene, to the grocer, to the miser's old landlord. An apology for lying. He had, in fact, sealed some small holes in the walls with toothpaste and had left milk in the refrigerator to sour. 
Prince started opening envelopes under the bed. There were letters to his old piano teacher thanking her for her kindness and apologizing for his lack of diligent practicing, and long, weepy epics to his nanny. They, they, there were letters to the bone. They were honest and warm and filled with regret. Fern was shocked. All the letters ended the same way. As you know, I haven't been myself. Who was the miser? Just then there was a rustle of wings, a quick flap-clapping. The crow appeared on the windowsill. It was a giant black crow. It called loudly. Fern knew she was being scolded. Was it the miser transformed? She quickly put the letters back in their envelopes and under the bed. Sorry, Fern said. The crone looked at her sadly. It caught again, a high cry. <coughs> Fern thought the crow might hop on her and sit in her lap. It looked so forlorn. But no, the crow puffed up its chest. It began beating the air. It rushed at Fern, and she screamed. She ran out the bedroom door, and the crow was after her. She turned and ran down the stairs, past her black umbrella in the parlor, through the kitchen, and out the back door to the yard. She felt the crow flap violently around her, up, up into the sky. Fern stood there, breathing hard, with her hands on her hips. Had the miser, in the shape of a crow, just caught her with his secret? Or had it been a crow? Sometimes a crow is just a crow. Out in the distance, she saw a shape stand up in the garden. It looked like Mrs. Appleplum, her dress, her swoop of hair, but she was standing upright, not hunched, even the least little bit. In fact, she seemed rather tall. She was striding confidently around the garden with a set of clippers. She stopped suddenly, as if she felt Fern watching her. She looked up, then rummaged through her pocket. She held up a letter over her head. Fern walked toward her, and she walked toward Fern. They met in the middle of the yard. There was nothing arthritic about Mrs. Appleplum now, nothing at all, except for a small limp, just a little limp in one leg. It reminded Fern of the bird that turned into a dog. Fern's heart was pounding in her chest. This is for you, her grandmother said. She handed the letter to Fern, and Fern recognized the handwriting, the miser's. Fern took the letter, but her head was spinning. Shaken by the angry crow in the miser's room, and by having just been at her old house, which was not her home, it had never really been her home, Fern wanted to confess to Mrs. Appleplum more than ever before that she was not Ida Bibb, but her granddaughter. She remembered the kiss Mrs. Appleplum had given her on the cheek, and how she had wanted to hug her after dealing with all the creatures in the yard. Fern remembered how it had felt to have her goldfish pond that first time. She said, I, I haven't been honest. It's okay, the old woman said. I haven't been honest either. Your name is Dorothea Gretel. I know, but... What? It's okay, I haven't been honest either. Your name is Dorothea Gretel. I know, but... Yes, and you know I have a limp from an accident. You know about the accident too, don't you? You saw me once get hit by a car, but it, you didn't know it was me. I thought you might put it together, though. So I took on many limps so that you would recognize that limp. You're very smart, Fern. Fern looked, oh, okay, so this really is her grandma. I thought it was the miser. I still, this is Jess. I still thought it was the miser pretending to be her grandma. Fern looked at her. Her eyes welled up. Her heart swelled. Her grandmother knew who she was, had always known. Had she known her since she was just a baby? When I was a little, Fern said, there was a book, and I shook crickets out of it, a whole room full. It felt wonderful to be able to tell her anything she wanted, anything at all. Mrs. Appleplum smiled and shook her head. Things aren't always what they seem, are they? Fern remembered the snowflakes that had turned into scraps of paper, and the little sentence, that little sentence that she had lined up on her desk. No, she said, they aren't. Oh, this, is, this is my favorite part so far, because there's a hug. Mm, love hugs. I miss hugs. Mrs. Appleplum pulled Fern to her chest. She hugged her tightly. 
She smelled of sweet lemons and the garden's dirt. And Fern knew that Mrs. Appleplum had been keeping an eye on her for a long time. She'd been the bird on her windowsill and the bat that had turned into the marble. She'd been the tree and the nun and the lamppost, and she'd known everything all along. Do you want your umbrella back? Fern asked. That old thing? No, thank you. I'm not sure why you held on to it. It's dented, you know. This made Fern laugh and cry at the same time. Has that ever happened to you? It's such a strange and wonderful thing. If it hasn't happened to you, I hope it does one day. Hush, my girl, hush. We've got work to do, Fern's grandmother said. The bone is gone. What? Do, do, do. Part five. Sweet, sweet. Part five, chapter one. The kidnapping. Actually, the adult napping. Right? Fern tore to the front yard where she found the bone's old jalopy, its hood still cranked open. Her mother called her to the house. Fern ran to her, ripped open the letter her grandmother had been holding, and read it out loud while following her grandmother upstairs. Dear Fern, I have the bone. I want the book. I believe you've heard of The Art of Being Anybody. I'll, I'll come to collect it at three o'clock. Don't try to find us. We'll find you. If I don't have it today, I'll have to do something terrible to the bone. I don't want to do this terrible thing, but as you know, I haven't been myself. Sincerely, M. Fern began. Do you know the miser? Yes. He was a fine enough boy. His name was Michael once upon a time. Your mother cared for him, but didn't love him. Did you know? I knew Mr. Hazer Blatherness was the miser, certainly. Just as I know you and your father were never the bibs. And Mr. and Mrs. Dredger? They are nice people, Fern. They took care of you well. A bit dull, but nice. How come... You could get crickets to pop out of a book as a little, little girl, but now you have to relearn it. Well, children can do so many things until they're told they can't. This is true of you, as in anybody, but it's true for other children, too. You've been... Here, Fern's grandmother turned. They now stood near the entryway, entranceway in her grandmother's bedroom. It was the only room in the house Fern hadn't seen yet. Yes, I've been the one keeping an eye on you. I knew that you would come to me when you needed me, in your own time. This is the way it was meant to work, Fern. Do you know? Of course I know where the art of being anybody is. Do you think I'd leave it laying about? Your grandmother twisted the knob and opened the door. Inside was a jungle of books and everything in it. Truly everything was made of books. The nightstand, the dresser, even the bookcase that held books was made of books. The bed had a coverlet, dust ruffle, and canopy of soft, old canvas-like parchment with ancient scrawl. The curtains were made of the same material. The lampshade was an octagon of thin books wired together. Fern turned and turned in the room. The ceiling, the walls, all books. The floor, too, was completely covered by leather bindings like a brick path. She bent down and opened the book at her feet. Admiral Hornblower in the West Indies. She went to pick it off the floor. I wouldn't do that if I were you. Those books aren't lying on the floor. They are the floor. If you lie on your belly, though, you can still read it. Maybe later, Fern said. Her grandmother smiled. When I give you the art of being anybody, Fern, you can do anything, anything with it. I mean anything. You could use it in such a way that eventually one day you could be a world leader. In fact, if you learn everything it has to offer, you could rule the world. Do you understand? I don't want to rule the world. I want the bone back. Her grandmother shook her head. I've heard this before, you know. It's what your mother said when the bone was coming for her. We were standing in this very room, and do you know what I said? No, Fern said. I told her that she could take the book, but that she was making a terrible mistake by going off with the bone. A terrible mistake. But, but, I know now, Fern's grandmother said, I know 
now that she was right. The bone found the ladder behind the barn, and when she got to the top of it, Eliza was when he got to the top of it, Eliza was there, her face flushed and bright. She chose love, or it chose her. Love, Fern. And when she called me from the hospital, she told me that lying beside her was the book. She told me that I should come and get it later. After. After what, I asked. But she didn't answer. I went to the hospital, and she was gone. I told this anxious, sputtering nurse that I wanted to look at the babies. She took me to a window, and I looked out over the sea of faces. I found you, and I knew you were one of ours. There, the nurse said, there he is, baby boy bone. And she was pointing to a squinty baby in a blue blanket. I knew she was wrong, but I didn't say a word. Fate. I knew it was fate. I shouldn't interfere. That you would come to me one day. I cried and cried. I said, I'll see you again, baby girl drudger, and I took the book. Fern was crying now, tears streaming down her face. Her grandmother lifted her chin with her hand. Do you know why the bone is called the bone? Fern shook her head. She'd asked once, but the question had ruffled the bone, so she'd never pursued it. Eliza told me his mother named him that when he was a baby because he was so sweet that it seemed he had an extra bone in his body, a sweet bone. He thinks he's tough, Fern said, smiling. Mrs. Appleplum smiled. Let's go save him. She opened a drawer in her bedside table, the one spot where you'd expect someone to put a book, the most obvious spot, and she pulled out a big leather-bound book with a thin leather belt around it, just as the bone had described. It had gold lettering on its front, the art of being anybody, under it in small gold letters, Oglethorpe, henceforth with. Henceforth to with. Henceforth to with. <laughs> Here, said Mrs. Appleplum, open it. She handed Fern the book, and Fern took its heavy weight into her arms. She closed her eyes, held the book to her chest, and thought of how her mother once had held this exact same book the exact same way. She ran her hand over the gold letters and along the thin belt. Go on, Mrs. Appleplum urged. Fern unhooked the belt and opened the book, but just as the bone had warned her, it made no sense. It was an awful jumbled mess. Unlike Fern's mother's diary, there would be an occasional word, a terrible senseless word like notwithstanding or aforementioned. But that was it. I can't read it, Fern admitted. Mrs. Appleplum took the book back. First, she pulled a purple crayon from her pocket. No, no, not this one, she said. Next, she found a black ink pen. Of course you can't read this book. You can't read it any more than I can. This book doesn't belong to you. Her grandmother showed her the first page of the book, where there was a sign you see in many books. It reads, this book belongs to... There was a list of names. The last on the list was Eliza. Just that, Eliza. Fern's grandmother said, do you know why your mother was such a good anybody? Fern shook her head. She knew who she was deep down. To become someone else or something else, you have to know yourself first. She handed her the pen. Write your name, she said. Fern thought a moment. Who was she? She wasn't Fern Drudger. She wasn't ever really. She wasn't Ida Bibb. She hadn't ever been called Fern Bone, and she hadn't ever been called Fern Gretel, her grandmother's last name. She could say that she was the Bone's daughter, or she could say that she was Mrs. Appleplum's granddaughter, but none of these things seemed to fit, and so she simply wrote Fern in small letters, and that seemed right. Now close the book and open it again. Fern did just that, and when she opened it to a page in the middle of the book, every word was clear. In fact, she turned what she turned to was chapter six. Six, hypnotizing and dehypnotizing objects. Fern thought of her mother's diary. Maybe it wasn't in code after all, but hypnotize. When trying to dehypnotize the book, it is best and most appropriate to concentrate, ruminate, ruminate, and cogitate on the book on the binding first, just as it's best to concentrate on a beak when transforming into a bird. 
Now the book is yours, her grandmother said. Oglethorpe, henceforth to it, had the ability to hypnotize objects such as books as well as people. So he wrote this book and then hypnotized it so it could only be read by its owner. Wasn't he a very smart writer? The hence fortuiths have a long and sordid history, some wondrous and some dastardly. I won't go into it in this book. It would be too overwhelming for you and for me. But the answer to this question was yes. Oglethorpe, hence fortuith, was a very, very, very smart writer. Very smart. Very smart indeed. Fern closed the book, rehooking its belt. She had one more question, though. There was one thing she thought she needed to put into action before going to save the bone. She wasn't sure why she felt she had to do it, but she was sure it was important, urgent. She said, I think it's better to tell people how you feel and not keep it bottled up, don't you? Yes, I do, her grandmother said. Well, then there's some mail that needs to be delivered, and I think, I need, I think I'll need an army to do it. Oh, she's going to send all those nice letters. Oh, that's sweet. Okay. Part whatever this is, five, part five, chapter two, <clears throat> armed with a book. If you are going to take on someone like the miser in, let's say, an old abandoned gas station where your father was being held captive, and you could shake a book and make something from inside that book pop out of it, and perhaps you can, what do I know? Uh, what book would you choose? The Bible? Did someone say the Bible? Yes, yes, smart thinking, but what if the Red Sea pulls up? Do you even know how to part the Red Sea? No, I didn't think so. Did someone say King Arthur? Well, that's a fine guess, except, of course, the horses could all get tangled up on the way out, which is cruelty to animals and therefore illegal. And what if all of those knights don't know whom they're supposed to conquer and they turn on you? Hmm. Did someone say Robin Hood? I heard someone say Robin Hood very softly, someone being almost too shy to say anything at all. Robin Hood is always a nice choice if you're looking for a hero. But quite frankly, the whole damsel in distress bit turns me off. Robin Hood goes around thinking that women can't take care of themselves, and women can, for goodness sake, especially in this day, of, day and age, especially Fern. Fern wanted to bring her mother's diary. That was the thought that crossed her mind. But it was with, but it was with Howard, although now she knew Howard wouldn't really be able to decode it since it was most likely not in code, but hypnotized. Fern thought for a moment about what other book she could bring instead, one that could save her and the bone. <clears throat> it didn't take her long to figure out. She wanted to save the bone herself. That meant there was only one sensible book to bring along, her own diary. This is important to remember. Sometimes you need to dig deep, dig down deep to rely on your own resources. This is a very American thing, self-reliance. Our forefathers and our foremothers, and for that ma matter, our four aunts and four uncles, would say that self-reliance is a cornerstone of something rather. <laughs> I've lost my train of thought, but hopefully you know what I mean. Self-reliance. Fern trusted herself, now that she knew who she was, and she brought her own diary because she knew that she could trust it. In short, she had faith in herself. Fern felt held her diary close to her heart. She had the art of being anybody in her lap, as she and her grandmother were bumping along back roads in her grandmother's truck. It's an old gas station, Fern told her. The pumps look ancient. It's abandoned. Seems like a perfect spot. Yes, yes, her grandmother said. I know the one. I know. How smart of you. I come by it naturally, Dorothea Gretel, Fern said, trying out the name for the first time. Dorothea Gretel, Dorothea Gretel. There was something about it she liked very much. The road was dusty and pocked with potholes. Are we almost there? Almost. 
Meanwhile, the army of fairies had Mrs. Appleplum's address stamp and an ink pad. They were stamping Mrs. Appleplum's address on each letter as a return address. The mailman would be there soon, so they're working fast, buzzing like a hive, the droning hum of wings. Above the dull roar, the red-headed fairy was barking orders. Go, 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 she shouted. We've got orders to follow. Meanwhile, Howard was feeding Mr. and Mrs. Drudger monkey food that he'd ordered through the internet. He'd been to the bank with Mr. Drudger dressed as an ape, and things had gone well. Mr. Drudger was a hit. A mother with two young kids asked if, if asked Howard if his father did birthday parties. Howard said yes and gave the woman their phone number. The Drudger seemed to enjoy the monkey chow, and it was quiet enough for the moment so that Howard could pour over Eliza Bone's diary. He saw no patterns emerging. Nothing, which isn't really a, a surprise to us now, is it? And the bone? Well, Fern was right. He was in the garage of an old gas station, one that he remembered from his youth. They used to spend long afternoons there together, Eliza the bone and the miser, listening to old records. The bone remembered it all, the oil stains, the dust, the stacked antiques, the smell of grease. But now the bone was tied to a chair. He was concentrating on the great Rialdo. He was thinking, I need you, where are you? The miser was pacing in front of him, pacing, pacing. His spies were gathered by the front door, keeping guard. You're a thief, Bone. You stole, Eli you stole Eliza from me. No, she chose me. There was nothing I could do. I loved her, the Bone said. No, you were a sneak. You hypnotized her into loving you, and I wasn't powerful enough to turn her love back to me. But who's more powerful now? I am, and I will have my way. But remember when we were kids riding unicycles together? We were best friends. Remember you used to be, the Bone said, shut up. The miser yelled, you used to be, stop it, you used to be so sweet, so kind-hearted. I have not been myself. It's your fault, Bone, your fault. If you were dead, maybe then everything would be better. Whew. Bern and her grandmother parked right in front of the old station. The red van with its gold letterings, Hazer Blatherness, lights flashing into toiletries, was parked near the pumps as if gassing up. You go in, Bern, her grandmother said. You can do it. By myself? Yes, her grandmother urged. But he's not alone. You'll do wonderfully. No, I can't. I need help. You have all the help you need. Her grandmother nodded at the books in Fern's arms. Fern popped open the door and slid off the seat to her feet. Wish me luck. You don't need luck, her grandmother told her. Fern closed the car door and walked toward the gas station. The books clamped to her chest. Part 5, Chapter 3, The Duel Fern knocked on the door. There were loud rummaging sounds and lots of whispery voices. It's her! She heard, she's here. The door opened slowly, but the entrance was blocked by a row of small, tightly muscled bodies. The miser spies. They wore matching red jumpsuits that had hazer blatherness, lights, plastic, and toiletries, stitched in gold letters over the small pockets on their chests. Some stood with their arms crossed and eyed Fern menacingly, while others seemed edgy, nearly frantic, glancing around excitedly. What do you want? One asked in a loud voice. Then he added in a whisper, you should go. He's in no mood. I want to see the miser, Fern told them, jutting her jaw proudly. You aren't supposed to be here, one from the back said urgently. You should go on home. Is something wrong? Fern asked. No, no, they all said too quickly, some wagging their heads, others nodding. She's here, a spy cried out. She's right here, now, at the door. Fern heard the miser growl. Not now, he said. Yes, another spy piped up, right now. Get going, the miser's voice boomed from inside the garage. I don't need any of you. So the spies ran off. One muttered, best of luck. They raced to the red van, each jumping up the step. The engine revved quickly, and the van sped off in a whirlwind of dust. Something was wrong. Fern knew it. She was certain of it. The miser had been thrown off his plan somehow. 
Fern stepped deeper into the garage. He looked worn down, furious, but with a wariness in his eye. Do you have the book? The miser asked, sneering at Fern. Fern, who's trembling with nerves. I do, but I want to see the bone first. I want to make sure he's safe. Don't make me angry, the miser said. Oh, no. Don't make me angry, the miser said, but it wasn't so much threatening as it was pleading. I want to see him now. And she tried to push her way past the miser, but he was too strong. Fern could feel her grandmother watching her from the car. Her grandmother had faith in her. Fern had faith in herself. She dropped to the ground quickly and dashed between the miser's legs. Bone, she cried, racing around the garage. Bone, where are you? But the bone was gone. All that sat there was an old wooden chair with ropes tied loosely around it. There was no back door. Fern wondered where the bone could have gone. How had he escaped? She felt a rise of chatter inside herself. She would have to start her talking. She could feel it. She, but then she held the books tighter to her chest. There's no time for that, Fern thought to herself. I don't need to chatter. I need to think clearly and calmly to be strong. She was right. There was no time. She heard a high-pitched howl, a screech. There was a breeze then, another breeze, then another breeze. She turned around ever so slowly, the flapping of enormous wings, a long neck and a pointy snapping beak. The miser had become a vulture. This was worse than Fern had expected. She opened her diary. While holding on tight to the art of being anybody, she shook the diary as best she could, hoping something good would slip out, something to help her. She shook and shook. The miser was flapping harder now. The room was gusty. Some loose pages of sheet music in the corner rose up and swirled. The vulture screeched again. The first thing to plop out was a plump, drowsy hobbit. What? Where? He spluttered. The vulture swooped over his head and the hobbit scrambled over a table. Under a table. Sorry, Fern said. She shook some more and books tumbled out. A small pile. A book spilling books. Not surprising at this point. She shook again and there was Mary Curtin, the flustered nurse, who'd accidentally swapped Howard and Fern so many years ago, sprawled on the floor in a ha flowered house dress and apron. Fern recognized her because, well, Marty had done a good job uh, of being Mary Curtin, after all. It looked just like her, and Fern had written about the real Mary Curtin in her diary. A good bit, in fact. Excuse me, she said. I don't know how I was cooking muffins. In fact, she was still wearing her oven mitts. My husband will wonder. He's watching his favorite TV program, and... But she had no time to finish the sentence. Fern was still shaking when out swung a bowling ball, connected to an arm, and Marty came flying out behind it, right into Mary Curtin, bowling her over. Who are you? Mary Curtin asked. I was about to bowl on lane eight. I'm Hay. You're Mary Curtin, the nurse, Marty said. Marty, is that you? But there was no time for further hellos. The vulture let out a sharp cry, and Mary did too. What's this? Marty asked, tucking his bowling ball under his arm. Don't ask, Fern said, shaking the book some more. Just get under these. She pointed to the hobbit who smiled awkwardly, trying to make the best of the situation. The vulture squawked again, and Mary and Marty did as they were told. Come on, Fern urged, rattling the diary with all her might. Come on, now! But Fern's diary had almost no weight to it. She felt a rise of panic. What if it was refusing to give anything else? It felt empty. And then, miraculously, there was a glimpse of blue. A butterfly flapped from the pages. A butterfly? How is that supposed to help her? But no. She'd written about the great Rialdo. She'd written about the bone being visited by the butterfly while getting the ladder to climb to Eliza's room that night so many years ago. Had the great Rialdo come to help her? The butterfly climbed and darted through the air. It flapped clumsily toward the vulture. Fern wanted to make a break for the door, but still couldn't. There was only one door, and all of the actions were taking place in front of it. All the action. 
She squatted down under an old wooden desk across from Mary, Marty, and the Hobbit. She was still clutching the two books. The vulture beat at the, at the butterfly with its tough wings, lunging and snapping, but the butterfly just skittered along, bouncing around in front of the vulture's face. This only made the miser angrier, who grew big, furry, clawed feet. The wings shrank and his teeth grew. His heart became blunt, golden, and then sprouted a wild mane. A lion! Oh my! Murray Curtin squealed, grabbing onto the hobbit, who was wide-eyed and confused. <clears throat> Just then, the butterfly dipped to the ground. It began to shake its wings, and soon it had trembled into a tiny, speeding mouse. The great Rialdo, Fern whispered in awe. The brown field mice tore around, zigzagging under the lion's paw. The, oh, I'm remembering a story about the, a lion and a mouse, and the mouse tricked them. The lion's mouth lathered. It pounced this way and that, but always too late. The big beast grew mad and dizzy, finally breathless. Fern crawled to the back of the garage. She rubbed circles on the back windows. She was looking for the bone. She didn't see him. She glanced around the garage again. The lion was staggering away from the front door. Now she might be able to get out. In fact, Mary Curtin had grabbed the hobbit and was running for the door with him clutched to her bosom like a baby. Marty was close behind, still holding tight to his bolding ball. As the great Rialdo as a little mouse was squeaking at Fern and seemed to be saying, go, go now. Fern was thinking back. She was trying to remember that first car ride in the old jalopy when Marty disguised as Mary Curtin. What had the bone said when she asked him about transforming into a bird, then a dog? Well, may well maybe, just maybe, if our lives depended on it, we could have some great sparkling moment. What if the bone didn't get away? What if he was still right here? What if he transformed into what if he transformed into the chair, the ropes? But this musing didn't last long. The muse was con the miser was convulsing. His body was rattling into a new shape. He was growing leathery, scaled, his shoulders broadened. He stood launched on two large clawed feet, his forearms shrank, hung it has two claws at his chest, muscled, vicious, hulking. The miser was now a dinosaur. Fern didn't have perfect knowledge of dinosaurs. An oviraptor? She knew some random facts about meat-eaters, T-Rex. She'd read about paleontologists. She stood in the dinosaur's looming shadow. He was no longer distracted by the mouse. He walked toward her, roaring now, his thick nails clicking. He clawed the air. The mouse was darting around nervously. The great Rialdo didn't seem to know what to do. Fern thought as hard as she could. What had she read about oviraptors? Something about the males. They protected their eggs. That was it. Once they were taught to steal eggs. But someone had discovered that they weren't thieves. They were proud fathers. Egg! Fern yelled to the mouse. Become an oviraptor's egg! The mouse scurried to a spot on the ground between Fern and the dinosaur. It trembled and then bloated to the size and shape of a huge speckled egg. The miser, despite himself, turned his gaze on the egg. He snatched it up in his front claws and took it to the far end of the room, where he curled around it lovingly. In moments, he was fast asleep. Fern jumped up and began shuffling through the stacks of old things. Warped golf shoes, rusted flour sifters, and sugar canisters, fast as she could. Bone, she said. Bone? Fern felt broken. No, Fern felt frantic. She accidentally knocked over an old trombone, which hit a stack of slippery records. One jostled the record player, flipping a switch. The old thing hummed. Its arm popped up and the needle moved to the record. It all happened so fast that Fern couldn't get to, to it in time. The record started up. Um, sweet, sweet darling, where have you gone? Where have you gone? But it wasn't anyone famous singing. It wasn't Elvis or a beetle or anything. It was the Bones voice. 
concern would recognize it anywhere. Huh, so does that mean he turned himself into the record? I'm not sure. <clears throat> Part 5, Chapter 4, The Great Rialdo. Anne of Green Gables never had to deal with such a mess. Neither did Heidi with her grandpa in Norway or wherever. Fern's father was a record, okay, he is a record, was a record spinning on an old turntable in an old gas station. Her father's greatest enemy was a dinosaur asleep on the floor a few feet away. Her father's greatest hero of all time was a big speckled egg in the dinosaur's clutch. She was worried about an army of fairies and if they had succeeded in mailing an enormous collection of letters. And the people she'd always thought were her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Drudger, were locked up in their house where they were under the impression that they were monkeys. And Howard, her swapped brother of sorts, was trying to decode her mother's diary in vain. Fern's mother had been a very talented anybody. Fern's mother was still dead. Fern needed help. Luckily, Fern thought, my grandmother is in her truck right out front. She ran to the parking lot in front of the old gas station, still clutching the book in her diary. Her grandmother wasn't there. In the cab of the truck sat the stray hobbit and Mary Curtin and Marty. Mary rolled the window down a few inches. Is it safe? I was bowling a good game too, Marty pouted. I had three strikes already. Did I mention it was the championships? Stay here, Fern said. Her grandmother was missing. This didn't surprise Fern. Not really. She knew that she had to figure this out on her own. Fern walked back into the garage. The miser was still asleep, but his dinosaur, dinosaur teeth were shrinking. His claws were plumping into pink fingers. Slowly, slowly, he was turning back into the miser. The egg was snug to his belly. The record was still turning. The bone's sweet, warbly voice crooning away about lost love. Now how could Fern get the bone to be the bone again? She thought again of Marty in the old jalopy, talking about how the bone once became a four-legged, furry, almost dog. Marty had said he was lucky he didn't get stuck that way. It took all the concentration Eliza and Marty had to get him back. And, had, and the bone had mentioned that third ingredient, the one he'd lost. But wasn't he getting better and better? Wasn't he improving now that Fern was helping him? He'd mastered not only Mr. Bibb's nose, but also the mustache, and occasionally genuine admiration for encyclopedias. She listened to the, to the song, The sweet, sweet, that my darling, where have you gone? She thought of the bone and his misty eyes and how much she'd loved Fern's mother, and her love for him must have sensed as much as it seemed like it had disappeared when she died. Could the ingredient be love? Fern loved the bone. She truly did. She placed both hands on the record player. She thought about the bone, soft, sweet, with gentle eyes. She closed her eyes and thought about how much she loved him. He was her father, her wonderful, sweet father. She knew this absolutely deep in her heart. She felt an electrical energy, a revving motor, like an engine catching and purring to life. The record player lost its hard edges. It grew warm. Fern watched it quake and twist, blushing with the green of the bone's shirt. Then his face bloomed, a popping open of arms and legs. The bone. He grabbed Fern and hugged her. Fern, I knew you'd find me. I knew you would. He pulled away and looked at her, just taking her in. Fern, my girl. And he hugged her again. Fern wrapped her arms around him, too. It was the first time they'd hugged each other, and the bone started crying. It was, some, it was like something in him broke, and tears came streaming down his face. I love you, Fern, my darling daughter. I love you. I love you, too, she said. And she knew it was true, because love was the ingredient that had brought him back. They hugged and hugged until the bone looked around, as if realizing where he was for the first time. The great Rialdo came as a butterfly at first, Fern explained, just like you told me he would. Where is he? Fern took the bone by the hand and showed him the miser. His skin was still leather, his snout long and tough. There, Fern said, 
pointing to the egg. That's the great Rialdo. That's him. It's really him. Just then, the egg rolled out of the miser's hands. It wobbled toward fern on the bone, then stopped. It quivered t- twice, and then its shell started to crack, as if there was a tiny baby dinosaur inside, pushing to get out. But there was no sharp egg tooth. No, there was a nose, two big, wet-looking eyes, and then an orthopedic shoe. Do you think it's the great Rialdo? Nope. Pop! In one enormous heap, Mrs. Appleplum, Dorothea Gretel, Fern's grandmother. You? Is it you? Fern asked. You can't be the great Rialdo, the bone said. Yes, Fern said. Yes, she can. Fern remembered the story that the bone had told her. The butterfly sitting on his shoulder as Eliza appeared at her bedroom window that night long years ago. And her grandmother had told her that too. She'd said, Eliza was soon there. Her face flushed and bright. And something had seemed off to Fern when she heard her grandmother say that. It was like her grandmother had seen her daughter too in the window. And she had. She had. She'd been sitting on the bone's shoulder all along. She didn't want her daughter to go, but she knew she'd chosen love. The bone needed to find the ladder, and so Fern's grandmother made sure he did. There was something else, too. Dorothea Gretel. It's a strange name, Fern said. Dorothea Gretel. Fern said, she looked at the bone. Don't you think? The boy, the bone stood, um, stared at her blankly. Fern was thinking back to the little slips of paper she arranged and rearranged as a child on her desk, the slips of paper that had started out as snow. If you switch the letters around, Fern said. The great Rialdo, said the bone. Fern's grandmother winked one beautiful big eye. Fern and the bone couldn't help it. They both winked back. <sighs> Part 5, Chapter 5. Oh, this story. Very intense. I wonder what's going to happen with um, the miser. Uh, the end, or just the beginning. I've heard storytellers say that sometimes they feel like magicians. They can make things appear and disappear with poofs and smoke, and have some old guy playing the organ to make things seem make things seem spookier. But I don't feel like a magician. I feel more like a rabbit nervously pooping in the magician's tight satin top hat, or worse, a rumpled winged dove shoved up some narrow sleeve. I'm hoping someone will pull me out of this tail so my ears can flop open or so my feathers can flap back into place, and then I can see what's really going on around me, blinking into some spotlight. Oh, this is the narrator. <sighs> my dear old writing teacher would never have admitted to such fears, but let's be honest. Despite all of his big awards and his begin at the beginning and his be true to the story, he's a big drafty windbag, and I've got to forge on alone, as we all must do at some point in our lives. You see, I think I know you pretty well. You're right on top of everything, every little detail, and you want to know this. If the missing ingredient was love, then how was it that the miser, so loveless, became such an expert anybody? I can only give my theory, and here's a tip. When grown-ups say they've got a theory, it means they really don't know and are about to make something up to suit themselves. So here goes, the letters. The miser had to write the letters because he really was, deep down, from the day he was born into this world, a good person. But rejection and loss, these are difficult to bear, and I hope you don't learn that the hard way. I suppose, though, that the hard way may be the only way to really learn it. I mean, you can watch after-school specials dealing with tough topics, but they don't really ever cut the mustard. (laughs) When Eliza ran off at the bone, the miser lost his love and his best friend. Instead of getting over it, he let it consume him, turn him into a different kind of person altogether. Remember how he signed all his letters? Of course you do. You remember? that I haven't been myself. 
He still had love, but he couldn't show it anymore. Now, I'm no psychologist who's going to sort through the miser's mental closet and try to rehang his pants so the pleats stay creased, but maybe he was afraid of more rejection. So he wrote the letters but couldn't send them. He was hoarding love in a way. He was storing it up by not giving it to anyone. Like those people who stack their basements with canned corn, bottled water, flashlights, toilet paper, thinking the end of the world is coming, the miser had built up a surplus in little arsenals of love. Now the miser was finally back in his room, in bed, and weak from all that transforming. Mary Curtin was also at the house. She called her husband a meal and told him to take the muffins out of the oven. He said he didn't know how to work an oven. She said, well, I'm needed here, Emil. I'm a nurse, you know, and someone is ill. You'll just have to learn how to work the oven. And she became an efficient steam engine of energy. She took the miser's temperature. She applied cooled compresses. She made him some tea and toast. The house of books was surprising to her, but she moved through it efficiently. It was a long time since she'd been a nurse, but it felt good to be a true woman of science again, one with a mission. While Nurse Curtin was downstairs concocting her remedies, and Marty was back for the last round of his bowling tournament, which they won because of the rallying power of his team, who, in the big game, with a man down and under pressure, stepped up their game, despite the odds, a heartwarming story of bowling and determination. Fern thought this might be a good time to break it to the miser that the letters had been mailed. They had, you know. The Perrys had done very good work, and Fern had shaken them all back into their books, where they remained quite happy, according to my research. Fern and the Bone went to the miser's room. He was lying in bed, completely limp. Every once in a while, his eyes would open. It was the first time Fern had ever really seen his eyes. They'd always been covered up by Mr. Hazer Blatherness's eyebrows. They were pretty green eyes, um, with soft black lashes. Miser, Fern said softly. Michael? He looked up at her and nodded. I have something to tell you, Fern said. We mailed all your letters. They were all stamped and ready to go, the bone added. We figured you meant to send them on, right? The miser moaned. No, he said. No, no. Tried to reach out to the bone as if to strangle him, but he didn't have the strength. He flopped back onto his bed. He stared at the, at the ceiling. Hmm, he said. I'm feeling... What? Fern asked. Well, that might explain why I'm feeling... What is it? The bone said. I'm feeling more like myself, he said. And then he sighed, smiled, and fell back to sleep. The letters were bouncing around in a sack in the back of the mail jeep that had crisscrossed its route and was now on its way back to the post office. The letters would soon fly off in different directions. They would be popped into mailboxes, dropped through mail slots. In the weeks to come, visitors would show up at Dorothea's door, one after the other, to see the miser, although some would call him Michael, and others Chatbox, a childhood name. The spies showed up, one here and one there, weeping, clutching sweet, elegant letters filled with thanks and kindness. His sister Imogene would come, and the grocer, now her husband. When the miser's mother would arrive, Nurse Curtin would hand him over to her. Nurse Curtin would make sure that the hobbits were all very healthy and drinking only in moderation, and she would be ready to go home and start to apply for some nursing jobs. The miser's mother would tend to the miser with tea and mineral salts. She would scold him for not sending the letters earlier, but too, she would shower him with hugs and kisses. She would call him Snookums. <laughs> His father was a great help around the house because he was so ridiculously strong. He still would eat a nail or two, but only for reasons of nostalgia, not for show. All the while, letters for the miser poured in, hundreds of them, flowers, telegrams. His letters had been beautiful and loving, after all, and they inspired people. The miser took all of the affection in. He let it fatten his heart with love till it was a plump muscle pounding happily in his chest. But would he ever forgive the bone for stealing Eliza's heart? This is hard to say. 
His letters to the bone arrived at Fern's grandmother's house. Like on many of the other envelopes, someone had written, had written return to sender. They must have figured the bone was gone for good. Maybe it was the neighbor lady who didn't like the rooster man or one of the clog-dancing Bardens. In any case, the letters showed up and the bone read them. Here is an example. Dear Bone, today is the kind of summer day when the three of us used to to la lounge around sipping sodas, trying to turn into bullfrogs. I miss those days, Bone. I can't help but think, how could you? You know I, you know how hard I take things. It's been years, and still you make me boil. I feel like I could burst into flames. I never used to be so flammable. But as you know, I haven't been myself. M. The bone would walk into a room. The miser would turn away. Many times the bone would say, Look, I'm sorry. But the miser couldn't ever quite respond. Not quite. His head would sag. He'd shake it woefully. But he couldn't say it was okay. Over. Old business. Forgiven. And Fern felt sad about this because, like her mother, she had failed to bring these two close friends back together. She'd gotten close. So close. But I'm getting ahead of myself. None of this had happened yet. The bone was in the kitchen making dinner while his mother-in-law read to him from a chair at the table. They'd made a deal. He and Fern were welcome to stay there as long as they wanted, but the bone would take over the house, the yard, and all the work, and in exchange she would read to him every darn classic she could get her hands on. And she could get her hands on a heck of a lot. Right now she was reading him a book about an Indian who lived in a cupboard. That's an old one we don't read so much anymore. And it made the bone open each of the cabinets very slowly and carefully, afraid an arrow might be flung in his direction. It was a different kind of house to read a book in. Fern was up in the bedroom alone. She was happy to be alone for the moment. She put her diary back in her bag, but she held on to the art of being anybody. She would need to visit Howard again soon to get her mother's diary. Now that she knew it was hypnotized and not in code, she would have to take a different approach with it. She would have the summer, at least, but she knew it would come to an end. And when Howard and Fern be swapped back again, would they return to their old lives for the school year? And then switch next summer and maybe on weekends now and then? I don't know about that. Would it be okay to be back with the Dredgers? Wouldn't they be a little different after all of this, too? Wouldn't they have to be after spending the summer as monkeys? <laughs> Fern could settle into her own room with its quiet lichen and her own library of books growing, growing up the walls. Her butterfly connection, it would take new meaning on now that she'd seen her mother take shape as one. Everything would have new meaning. For example, she would know who the bird watching her on the limb outside the window was now, and she could invite that bird in. Or would Howard stay in her room? Would she stay here, with her grandmother, reading to the bone? The miser recovering in his room, writing letters again, hour after hour. Would Fern transplant her lichen, letting it grow on the slippery rocks by the pond, and in the painting of the goldfish and lily pads? Her lichen would like it there. And she could begin to study the art of being anybody by Oglethorpe and Sportuith. This was just too much to think about for very long, and it didn't really matter. Fern knew now there was a place where she could be herself, where she fit in, where she could feel really and truly at home. She could go anywhere in the world, and these facts would remain true. So her thoughts moved on. There was something more immediate that Fern was still trying to figure out. Something. She knew her mother couldn't be shaken from the book. She knew her mother's body couldn't ever come back in any transformation. But what about a piece of her essence, her soul? When the bone was the record player playing a record, it wasn't just his body, but some other part of him, too, that was sitting in that machine. Fern could hear it in his voice. Fern put both of her hands on the book with its small leather belt, just as she had the record player. 
but this time she thought of her mother, swaying to the music on the record player, pregnant and dancing. She thought about how much she loved her. She concentrated with all of her might, and yes, her hands grew warm, and she felt a certain sweetness, a warm-chested ache of love, then an outpouring, and miraculously, a flood of the scent of lilies. The end. But wait, there's an afterword. <laughs> well, it seems that my old writing teacher got his hand on this book somehow, anonymously, maybe even slipped under his front doormat in the middle of the night, and he wrote me a letter of response. I've enclosed a shortened version of his letter. I had to cut it a good bit because it is longer than the book I wrote, but here is the shortened version. Dear N.E. Body, stop. Please do not continue writing this silly and idiotic nonsense. Here he went on for 63 pages, categorizing what exactly he found silly and what exactly he found idiotic. Firstly, I don't enjoy being called a dusty windbag. Should I remind you of the various literary awards? Evidently, the answer to this question was yes, because he went on for 78 pages detailing his wondrous career. Secondly, you are not a good writer, just as you were not a good student. In fact, you were the worst. Here he used a word that I cannot repeat. Student I ever had. Always tardy, always shuffling around to sharpen a pencil or get a drink of water. Don't think I didn't notice you reading other authors' books hidden in your lap during class time. Your papers were always stained with jelly, and more than once I had to wake you up in the middle of one of my most interesting speeches. Here he included the most interesting speeches I may have slept through. 329 pages. Thirdly, you say this story is true, but who is going to believe you, N.E. body? I ask you again. Who will believe? Who indeed? Sincerely. I will not reveal the windbag's name. That would be disloyal. But you know that I know, that he knows, that we all know there is more to tell. In fact, as Fern starts to learn new talents by reading The Art of Being Anybody, she goes away to a summer camp, especially for aspiring young anybodies. There is a mystery that turns us back to the family of Oglethorpe, hence Fortuith, author of The Art of Being Anybody, especially his grandson, Bort, O, hence Fortuith. Bort spells his name exactly as it is written here capitalized and underlined and is pronounced loudly with emotion. He isn't Bort. He's Bort, if you follow me. Oh, there's much to tell. In the words of my famous writing teacher, who will believe? Who indeed? And that is very much the end. Oh my goodness. Oh, there's a thank you at the end. Oh, I'll read you that too. It's like thanking various people and the acknowledgement, blah, blah, blah. Um, and special thanks to you. Yes, you. Are you really surprised? You shouldn't, after all. I did dedicate the whole book to you. If it weren't for you, this book would be fairly useless, wouldn't it? I mean, it could prop up the uneven leg of a chair or something, but that would be a pretty sad destiny for a book. So thank you, really. The end. Oh my goodness. It's over. The whole book of the anybodies. We have the end. I wonder what book I should read next. Um, if you have some ideas for me, you could send me a message or just think it really hard and maybe I'll hear you. Um, I am not sure how many people made it to the very end, but I know that Elliot did. I think that Paisley and Poppy and mm, not sure about Celia and Olive, but I think Haley did, and I think 
maybe Judah and Nathan probably did, and maybe Noah and Benjamin. Hmm, who else is listening to all of them? Well, Elliot probably listened to it multiple times. I don't think Ramona listened to this one, but Sydney probably did. And maybe Olive and Nora. So um, if I missed you, did I say Haley? I think Haley listened in Ohio. Um, so if I missed you, you should tell me, Jess, you forgot that I was listening. Maybe Bennett? Did Bennett listen to you? Okay. Um, I can't wait to read you another book. I miss you. Love you. Bye.